Beverly presents the Pure Cinema Podcast. And it's January. We are in 2019. Well, it's not. We're, we're like three days before January that we're recording this, but we are going to be kicking off the new year with this episode. Uh, so we were going to do a couple things. We're going to catch up a little bit on our holiday uh, viewing that we just were lucky enough to get a good day at the, at the theater um, and then uh, cut into our 10 films because 2018. Not yes. not top ten necessarily, even though I think it is an approximate of a top ten. Uh, but we can get in, we can discuss the uh, finer issues of that later. But uh, but first, uh, we saw three movies together on Sunday. It was Christmas ago. Eve Eve, the eve of Christmas Eve, uh, yes. and we were always going to be going to the a great Christmas uh, crime double at the New Bev. That was kind of in the cards, and a couple days before, because last year we had ended the year. Uh, at a screening of the Phantom Thread together, and uh, that film ended up topping both of our lists uh, and being, you know, a major film for both of us. So uh, I thought it'd be really fun if we could, you know, fit in one more movie. And there's just this movie that I'd heard a lot about. Um, I didn't realize there would be any kind of Christmas connection, but turns out it's all set in winter, uh, which was nice, uh, largely. And uh, the first of the three films was uh, Cold War, uh, directed by Pavel Pavlovsky, um, who also won, I think he won the Oscar two years ago for foreign film for Ida. Um, but I remember him more for a film called my summer of love maybe a decade before um which was a really good little like summer romance uh between two uh uh you know fairly young girls uh film that i just remember being you know really well observed um but in general i'm a, I'm a very big polish cinema fan like if there's any nation where and not necessarily recently there hasn't been you know much to uh to go crazy over but you know especially in the 70s uh, 60s and 70s you know early polish cinema your skolomowski's kieslowski uh, polanski uh, you know um uh, there, you know, there's there's a couple others that uh, all, all coming from that Wodge Film School. Um, oh, Andre Vida, of course. But um, anyway, so he he's an interesting name coming out of that, and I'd heard this was uh, a really solid movie. So I thought, okay, let's travel to the far side of town. <laughs> <laughs> Both of us uh, venturing all the way out to Santa Monica to to the one theater that saw it with a very different clientele. Uh, everyone, I think, we're the only ones under sixty, probably. Yeah, yeah, it was definitely an older crowd. Yeah, an older theater. Uh, and I speculated that when they showed the running time at the box office, you know, it was the movie is an hour and 28 minutes, which is another reason we wanted to see it because it was shorter, but they listed it at an hour and 42 minutes. I was like, what does that mean? And I was like, oh, they're giving the entire runtime with trailers of the program so that cranky old people <laughs> can know exactly when they're getting out of the their theater. bladder. They need to know their bladder check. Um, so that was funny. But it what is it for a for a movie that's that short? It, one of the impressive things about it um, is the ability to cut through time. You know, it, it cuts through each each scene. It's it's basically a collection of uh, key scenes in the love story between these two people who uh, you know who are related through music, basically, uh, and every cut more or less uh between these scenes is a couple years at least sometimes up to like five years uh and so it really you know charts through time and usually when movies do that they tend to be epics they tend to be 
you know, two and a half, three hours long. So there's something really interesting about the way that this is very concise and it just jumps you in at the, it doesn't give you any of the extraneous material about their relationships or their lives. In fact, major, major things happen in their lives in the interims that they totally gloss over and don't, including having a kid, they don't, they don't see as very important. They, he's just interested in the moments these characters are connecting or coming back together, uh, charting against, you know, the back backdrop being the cold war. So it starts in Poland and it ends up in, in multiple cities, including Paris. And so it's, it's very unique in that way. Um, I think you put it pretty well after that. That was also one of the things that made it a little harder to maybe care uh, you know, too much about them because you didn't get long enough, maybe. Yeah, I think I think the other thing that got to me, and I enjoyed the film, don't get me wrong, and I think Joanna Kulig uh, is A, stunning. Yeah. Uh, you had called out she has a certain um, Jennifer Lawrence look. I would called out I think she has a little bit of a Liv Ullman look, which is appropriate in what would seem to be somewhat Bergman-influenced, you know, romance, but maybe I'm... Well, but I'm then her reaching. performance ends up being, I agree with both those uh, physical observations, but her performance ends up being a little bit more like Jenna Rollins in like, you know, uh, you pick, take your pick, Minnie Moskowitz or yeah. um, Woman on the Verge, because she's kind of like, she's the spark of this movie for sure. Like on the pluses, it looks gorgeous. Probably my favorite shot film of the year, actually, like the, the four by three nice. black and white cinematography is very, like I kept trying to figure out why it was shot in four by three, but I, I guess kind of like a prison i guess they're kind of trapped maybe that's the idea i don't i couldn't tell you because it's the opposite of what you'd expect for something that's that beautiful you'd expect it to be going for but um it's a gorgeous looking movie but she just feel it's so controlled the movie but she feels like she's the one thing that can't be controlled and 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 which also echoes the way this character sees her like that why he keeps being drawn to her she's got that spark of life in her that is you know you'd be crazy not to fall in love with but it also means you're gonna have to have some adventures to hold on to uh that kind of a person but yeah she's really something in it yeah she's great i think i think for me the thing that uh, where i'm at now anyway is if i had seen this movie before i was married I think I would be more inclined to really be swept up in the romance. Yeah. But personally, um, and not to give away too much, but because we're seeing them at intervals throughout their lives, I think it starts in 1949 and goes through 1965. Mm -hmm. I could be wrong about that. Uh, very interesting ending by the way, which we won't obviously spoil, but, um, Part of me gets hung up on movies where there's uh, characters that they have this long stretching romance, but they don't ever have to like live together or <laughs> be married. And so part of me is just like, fuck that. Like, yeah, that's great. Sure, you can long and pine for this person, but like, what would it be like to live with them? And there, there is some scenes where you start to see them become a little more irritated with each other, which is yeah. the stuff where I'm like, okay, now we're talking. Um, <laughs> I don't want to see that movie though. I agree with you completely, but also I don't right? know if I want to watch that movie. I totally, I'm totally with you and myself and uh, not yeah, wanting yeah, to yeah. see that movie. But I'm saying like yeah, that right. that makes it hard for me sometimes. To, that makes it seem like, I, I guess I, I feel like a, a, a love story like this seems naive in comparison to my own personal experience. Uh, not that I'm so seasoned, but you know, you and I both know it's not easy in the long term, being married to somebody, sticking with them, 
and not to get away from this movie too much, but that's my own personal feelings that I felt myself hoisting on this poor little movie. And it's also um, different types of people. Like I, I do think when you find two artists get in a relationship together, especially if there aren't kids involved, you're definitely dealing with a different kind of world. Uh, and and I, I do know people you know, in my life who are artists who have no intention of having kids who have a much more fiery relationship because it's not built on practicalities. It's built on two different uh, obsessive type of personalities that are trying to achieve yep. this uh, fairly abstract thing, which is art, you know, and, and I think they get that really well in the film and the kind of competitiveness. Right. I mean, my first comment to you was like, oh, man, it really reminded me of um, uh, New York, New York and those kind of movies where you've got the two kind of people competing different, different version of that story, but definitely is in there. Um, I, I really and like it. I've got to say, I, I really like this film, but I actually do agree with you that I didn't feel too much for them. And I don't know if maybe the iciness is part of just the director's, um, you know, what he's actually interested in. But I, I definitely think you're, you're spot on the money with that. I didn't mind that I didn't care because I still was interested in the way it keeps coming back together. I, me too. I, yeah. Don't get me wrong. It was It was by no means a case of me not liking the movie, but it was like... I wanted brief encounter. I wanted yeah, yeah, yeah. the passionate friends, you know, uh, Phantom Thread, and it didn't deliver emotionally to me on that level. That said, beautiful movie, great performances. I was one hundred percent invested the whole time, you know. So it's, I highly recommend people see this movie for sure. Yeah, I definitely think it's going to be one of the more interesting uh, farm films of the year, especially just the way it feels, the kind of the aesthetic of the film. And there's just a couple moments where you're like, oh, that's a gorgeous moment. But you're right. Yes. Sometimes when you're thinking that's a gorgeous moment, if that had been Passionate Friends or one of these movies, I'm usually feeling something something that I can identify with. I can identify with the lust in this movie where he first kind of is checking her out and the feeling for her. But after that, it's a little harder to understand what they share. You know, we're seeing them together, but we don't necessarily fully understand what that thing is. What is that quality? But, um, but you know, it's, it's, I I do think it's really well realized. It's interesting. I, I looked into it a little bit more of that because it was um, dedicated to his parents and it turns out, I guess they had a relationship kind of like that. I hope, hopefully it didn't have quite the same end, um, but a relationship that was very back and forth and ended up, kind of getting together, breaking up between lots of different countries. So he, he really is his like kind of love letter to his parents, which I thought was kind of a fascinating cool. thing. Yeah. Especially if it's that turbulent. Uh, but I would definitely recommend this one. I, and I, I think it's in theaters uh, a bunch of places now. Um, and I think because of its running time, it's, it makes it a little more accessible um, for people. And yeah, no, I think it's interesting. And the other thing that you might find interesting is Joanna Kulig's uh, voice and stuff. I guess they modeled after Lauren Bacall. So even though we had three other people, it makes sense that it was kind of this tough, the kind of uh, almost noirish way of responding to everything. So, but she's great. To me, that's a star turn. She really is the spark of the movie and and the big reason to see it for sure. And I'd agree. I think the main guy in it is really good. The performance is good, but they really give you so little to know about them. You're really just observing the exterior of this character who is that kind of almost a cliche of the musician type who's aloof. And I never really saw that scene that made me understand who he was. Um, and I think it's a movie that's maybe not interested in that, but that is part of the remove, I think. Yeah. Which is again, fine that yeah, it's, it's not interested in that, but, but yeah, I th- I'm with you. I'm with you. But, but I definitely I, see it. Yeah. And, and if I was doing a traditional top 10, this is the kind of movie that might hit that 10 spot. Like, right. <laughs> at, it, it could just be in there. Um, I liked it 
enough to be in that kind of framework obviously because we're talking about at the top I, I won't be in this list but um yeah i, I would try to see it but it did set the t- tone of our night <laughs> to the two films <laughs> after were very different uh and this one uh had a lot of snow so i did feel the cold uh for our christmas eve eve triple uh we then headed over to the new beverly to do something i hadn't done yet which is a a regular in la uh being that die, not, die hard isn't just a great christmas movie which often is people are debating online which is absurd because it's got so many references to christmas um but it to me the more important part is it's a great christmas in an la movie because anyone who ever lives here knows how weird it is to celebrate christmas here because a there's no one in town like half the town leaves and the industry of the town shuts down and then it's also sunny <laughs> and, and the yeah. weather doesn't change. So it's really weird in that. So this is awesome that there's this movie of a, of a New York character coming into uh, coming to Los Angeles and just all the frustrations he feels. I mean, it's such a the things I didn't I'd never I don't know if I've ever seen it on screen. So it was fun to see it on on the big screen. But uh, just there's a lot of just like references to, you know, welcome to L.A. things like L.A. feels <laughs> like a totally different culture, which really made me laugh. California uh yeah you know retrospect but man what a great freaking movie yeah i mean you and i both i think were at a point where it had been just long enough that we had seen it from that from the point we had seen it and i was personally absolutely ready to watch it again yeah and yeah i'm just in pretty much perfect movie i mean you know for what it's doing and the action and i mean it's just really for all the imitators there really is only one and there's so many things coming together, so many great performances. Obviously, at the center, you've got you know Bruce Willis and uh, oh Alan Rickman, yeah, Hans. Gruber, Alan, Alan Rickman. Rickman yeah. um, those two are just so perfect together, and they play off each other so well. But there's a lot of great supporting players, um, and it played great with the crowd. It was it was an absolute delight, and what a wonderful Christmas Eve Eve start. And it's funny, and it's funny, and you know uh, Rickman is just so good in that film. Um, yeah. One only one fact I want to throw out there that I, I I just read, which I'd never heard, was that apparently it was actually Alan Rickman's idea that the the villains all wear suits, and before they were meant to, in the script, they're wearing tactical like kind of army ops clothes and it and you oh, think about what a huge choice that is because every movie after this one in the 80s is all like you know euro suave uh criminals you know and, and gangsters right. and terrorists so you're like that it's and, and it just adds so much to the way the whole movie feels and looks um but yeah no it's a super fun super fun film but then you know everyone's seen die hard here so uh let's cut over to the big story yeah uh the third so. and best of all the film well die hard's hard to beat <laughs> but i i gotta say i have had a lot of films recommended to me and it's hard to not succumb to the hype uh especially if it's like over a year where you've heard something's great uh the silent partner completely delivered on the hype train i mean we we ran the same risks didn't we we're uh apart <laughs> this movie is and i wasn't sure at the start if it would like there's a few yeah. beats at the start i'm like okay oh, okay he's a santa it starts this a little slow good. and it's it's almost like a different movie and then one well, also don't really, really like kicks... elliot gould at the start because no, there's something tricky. about him he's playing against type and he's such a charming and fun to watch character but in the first you know and it's part of the character obviously yeah. he's uptight kind of a little a little timid and uh you know works at you know he's the main uh, kind of cashier at a bank uh, there's 
something about it that's a little off, but as as it goes, it all it builds into such a really complex character actually for him. And this movie is so wildly entertaining and well plotted. I mean, this is Curtis Hansen's screenplay. Um, when did you see this one for the first time? Because I know you recommended it a long time ago to me. Um, when did I see this? I think I saw this off of um, a recommendation from Danny Perry. I think it's in the hmm. Guide for the Film Fanatic. Hmm. So I want to say I saw it on VHS back in the late 90s, maybe. I think hmm. I remember getting it then. Um, but yeah, I've only seen it two or three times since that first time. And this was the most fun because again, with the crowd, the print was a little bit, um, pinkish. Uh, I, th- I think I heard bit. something like there isn't many prints of this. I, 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 yeah. I get the feeling that this is not an easy, I mean, it's Canadian film, Canadian yeah. uh, shot. Uh, your boy, Daryl Duke is the director, uh, who you've yeah, mentioned Mr. Payday. for payday and not a lot else. Not a lot. I mean, a lot of TV no. movies, but not a lot of other features. Um, but it, but well, one thing that's let's start with is I was thinking, oh, the connection is obviously the Christmas uh, and heist. They're both heist movies, essentially um, uh, films between this and Die Hard. But then I realized the actual real connection is they have a very similar, in, very intricate non face to face communication between a protagonist and antagonist is a huge mm-hmm. part of both movies. So both films yeah. feature a character basically having to talk over a, whether it's a walkie talkie or a payphone, um, menacing the other character or dealing with them. And I was like, Oh, that's really interesting. Cause that's a huge part of this movie. Uh, and it's the cat and mouse element. It's one of my favorite cat and mouse films. I, c- I can think of now having seen it. Uh, Christopher Plummer, uh, is the one most people have heard. And, uh, you know, obviously this, you, we've talked about this a lot on the show, but having just seen a uh, place, Harry Reichel and he's just, you know, equal parts, charismatic sadistic and just odd like you know his sexual sexuality seems very in question you know he makes <laughs> just got, lots like, of choices eyeshadow on the whole eyeshadow movie and kind of leathers and but it's you know definitely implied that he's with woman but it definitely mm-hmm. seems you would also kind of guess that his interest in elliot gould might go beyond just breaking into his house and rearranging furniture <laughs> it could be more sinister i don't know but uh yeah uh, they're both fantastic Susanna york's uh, the Susanna york elliot gould stuff is just ridiculous it, it, it but yes. it makes the film really entertaining because uh he's very interested in her and every time he gets close enough to get her she's kind of not interested in him at the start and every time he gets into a position where he can actually be with her uh he's had some sort of interruption by the the Christopher Plummer character that makes him not be able to focus on her and he has to do something, <laughs> uh, you know, in the, in the crime world, which is, is just really funny back and forth. But it's it's really interesting tonally. And I think I love any film that is able to like go from, you know, your comic tones, your John Candy cameos in there uh, to really, really dark stuff. There is a scene in the mm-hmm. three quarter mark. I'm not going to give anything away, but it's right out of the Argento playbook, somewhere between <laughs> Tenebrae and Trauma and it's shocking because you aren't expecting a scene like that in this movie. No. And it really makes it ups the level of the movie because it makes you you'll never forget how that a movie like this went there with something. Uh, and it ups, you know, the character ante by, you know, tenfold. So uh, this is a great thriller um, and just it's just so fun. I, I, I don't want to tell people too much because I know we talked about like, yes, it's about a Santa, you know, trying to rob a bank who then, you know, uh, becomes a cat and mouse thing because the Elliot Gould character kind of outsmarted the robber and robbed the bank. Uh, made made it look like the robber robbed the bank, but actually he was kind of embezzling the money from the inside. Uh, but that just leads to so much more. You know, there's so much more yeah. in the story that I didn't know. I, it was a nice thing. I didn't know too much about the plot. 
and I would yeah, want to keep we it that way. Give away too much yeah. more, but yeah, it's it's available on Amazon and on DVD if you want to rent it. It's not that hard to see, so you know you can definitely check it out, and you should. And we were pleasantly surprised to hear that a few people definitely showed up to the New Bev screening because they heard us talk about it on the calendar episode. Um, so that was pretty cool. That yeah, was because cool a lot folks. of people had left after Die yeah. Hard, which apparently happens most years, uh, which is a real shame because this is a gem. I mean, this this right now, you know, seeing it now after we've done our our discoveries, this will, you know, guaranteed spot at the top of the next year's discovery list. So um, take that for what you will. You definitely want to see this movie um, and probably Good try stuff. to see it soon because it, 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 will, it will feel less special if you wait till, you know, February or March, I think, because it does. Yeah, it's a, yeah. Good to watch at Christmas for sure. Yeah, totally. Um, anyway, great movie. So glad you liked it. Let's get physical. <laughs> it's ne- never going away. Oh, I love it. I love it. Uh, well, why don't uh, why don't you go first? What what's your what's your physical uh, media thing this month? Physical media. Well, like I said, I I said. Um, we were talking before, I've got just a huge stack of stuff, and I towards the end of the year, it becomes very difficult for me to uh, watch a lot of the Blu-rays coming out because uh, I'm seeing a lot of new films catching up for episodes like this, between this and Shockwaves. So, uh, but one I had watched, uh, and it's actually kind of funny uh, because I watched it for our next episode uh, coming out uh, this month where we, I'll, I'll, I'll throw in the spoiler, uh, we're, for film debuts. This is the one that turned out to not be a debut. <laughs> and so I had watched it with that in mind. And I was very excited because I was like, oh, this is a really, you know, going to be an impressive debut. And then, of course, realized it was like the guy's fifth film. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was so far off. It's not even funny. But, um, yeah, this is a movie. I, I mentioned it on one of our um, Patreon episodes. Uh, it's a film that a friend of mine in New Zealand had seen about 15 years ago at a film festival. And he told me about it and saying it was just one of the best films about, you know, childhood youth he had ever seen. And I'd wanted to see it ever since. Could not. I think it was one of the least accessible movies out there. Like couldn't find any kind of a release. French film. It is uh, Olivier Assiasis, uh from 94 Cold Water. Um, and so this is a Criterion release, uh, which is a major deal. Like from what I can gather, and I'm going to guess the only guess I have of the why after watching it is the it is a film completely built around its soundtrack, and its soundtrack is um, I mean especially just brilliant use of like Virginia Plain by Roxy Music, uh, Schools Out, Alice Cooper, Leonard Cohen's oh, Avalanche, wow. uh, Uriah Heep, and they keep repeating. Uh, Chris Christopherson lyrics, you know, freedom's just another word uh, for wow. nothing, le- which feels like the plot of the movie. It feels like it's a whole movie built from that lyric, but like it's prevalent. It's like it's it's part of the fabric of the movie is that they listen to these songs. And the opening one of the opening scenes is a guy and girl who are, uh, you know, probably 16, 17, who are dating. 
um, robbing a couple of vinyls out of a store and the girl gets caught and the guy gets away and and you know all the problems that kind of um, kind of spur from that one opening moment but uh, the su- the reason that you're gonna want to watch is because in uh, quote marks under the title I've written it's the French over the edge um, oh no way because it just kind of has that vibe it's not it's not as uh, maybe intricate in terms of the, the amount of young people you've seen over the edge but this is like one of the most realistic portraits of young teen love how all-consuming that feels when you love someone and you just feel like nothing else will ever matter and you drop everything else for them that's the kind of story it is with these two people but because the girl at the start is caught she's been getting in a lot of trouble and they're going to send her to kind of a I, i don't they call it like a nursing home but it's obviously it's more like probably a foster home and the guy's you know, planning how he's going to get her out of there and they're going to, you know, kind of run away together. That's kind of the backdrop, but it's not a film about plot at all. It's really uh, just seeing the way these, you know, how in love they are, the teenage situation. A lot of the movie is based at this big teenage party after she's left the home and there's all these teenagers uh, in the middle of nowhere at like this abandoned house where they're just like having a huge bonfire and listening to music and, you know, trying to light adults to so they won't find her. And it's, it's like elaborate and keeps going and going and, you know, you know, they're dancing to these you know classical uh 70s music that just kind of brings it just really evokes a feeling of what that felt like it, it really is one of the great movies about this uh, kind of raw young love it's it's just it got it has total no bs that's how i felt about it like it ends and you're like i mean it's french so obviously it's i'd say it's more romanticized than a lot of kind of american and even where i grew up largely in new zealand i feel like the french have a different love is even more all-consuming and it's all about uh you know surrendering to those feelings love and sex but um it's really something the actress in it who um what did I, I definitely noted her name uh virginia ledoyan she was somebody you would remember from later on being as the, she was the lead in the beach with dicaprio she was the uh french girl and she's you know really striking uh actress and you know she just holds all that mystery and intrigue that any you know the biggest crush you could ever have would have but also seems dangerous in, in a lot of ways um, because she seems more mature even though she's the same age she just seems more mature than the guy in this um, but I'd put it up there with one I've mentioned a long time ago called um, A Swedish Love Story which is another by Roy Anderson which is also totally un- unreleased any on any kind of disc uh, and could be a Criterion film um, they have some similarities and I would you know say if you're into those kind of movies this is a sure thing It's it's got a great interview with the uh, director on the disc and some 4K restoration but um without knowing more about it i have to guess that it's the music that maybe held it up for sure yeah no but you sold me on the soundtrack before you even said it's the uh you know french over the edge yeah um the soundtrack makes it sound like over the edge too in that it's got some really rocking tunes in it um yeah i'm in man i just added it to my amazon wish list so yeah, I think I think for people like there's a couple directors that you know this is coming from a tradition of like um, Jean Eustache, Maurice Playa, and Robert Bresson has a lesser scene film called The Devil Probably, and it's kind of his last film, more about like people in the 70s, and uh, it's it's from definitely that those kinds of movies have rubbed off on this because you know Essiasis is really was a critic first, you know he he was kind of followed in the Goddard model where he became a film critic before he became a director, so he's definitely you know into all these movies and has seen all this stuff probably over the edge is probably honestly wouldn't be surprised if it made an influence on this guy because this is 94 um but yeah it's it's i thought i was really struck by how um 
you know, just evocative it was. Cool. Cold water. I gotta check it out. Um, so I just did a, you know, favorite Blu-rays of the year episode of Just the Dis with Stephanie Crawford, who's a regular on the show. And I feel a bit remiss in that I hadn't checked out the Magnificent Ambersons Blu-ray before I did that episode. So your devilish machines are going to ruin all your old friends, eh, Gene? Do you really think they're going to change the face of the land? They're already doing it, Major, and it can't be stopped. Automobiles Automobiles are a useless nuisance. What did you say, George? I said automobiles are a useless nuisance. Never amount to anything but a nuisance, and they had no business to be invented. Of course, you forget Mr. Morgan makes them. Also, did he share in inventing them? If he weren't so thoughtless, he might think you rather offensive. I'm not sure George is wrong about automobiles. With all their speed forward, they may be a step backward in civilization. Maybe that they won't add to the beauty of the world or the life of men's souls. I'm not sure. But automobiles have come. And almost all outward things are going to be different because of what they bring. They're going to alter war and they're going to alter peace. And I think men's minds are going to be changed in subtle ways because of automobiles. And it may be that George is right. Maybe that in 10 or 20 years from now, if we can see the inward change in men by that time, I shouldn't be able to defend the gasoline engine, but would have to agree with George that automobiles had no business to be invented. Um, I think sometimes with Criterion, I lean away from that stuff because I'm like, oh, everybody knows. But now I feel like, yeah, everybody is talking about the fact that it came out a bit, but it was a little bit overshadowed by the Bergman box. And I was not quite ready for just how much good stuff is in the Criterion Magnificent Ambersons. You know, and I'd re- I knew you were going to do this, and I really wanted to w- have time to watch this before because, I mean, I hate, I don't want to be held to it, but I've always said Ambersons might be my favorite Wells movie. And, you know, I haven't obviously seen it in this new version. So I'm very curious to know everything that's uh, on this thing. Yeah, I mean, well, the thing I texted you about that got me right away is there's, well, there's two audio commentaries. There is one from... I want to say, oh, I can't remember the guy's name, but uh, I want to say it's the original Laserdisc commentary from back in the 90s when this came out, Criterion Laserdisc, because he actually refers to scenes taking place on this side, meaning this side of the Laserdisc and the other side, you know, mm-hmm. like, um, so, but anyway, he, that commentary is good. It's much more about uh, what's missing, you know, which is the the tricky part of the movie is that we're always kind of talking about like what could have been with it and not as much what is. Um, so that commentary is good, but it's another yet another thing that reminds me of what could have been. But I think what is is a really good movie. And yes, would it have been better with an extra 40 minutes or whatever? Sure, it would have. But I still think what is left, you know, studio politics uh, aside is a pretty great movie from a f- great filmmaker. Uh, but the commentary that I loved is the James Naramore and Jonathan Rosenbaum commentary. Francois Truffaut actually said that the style of this film is almost as if the director of Citizen Kane was criticizing himself and wanting to teach him a lesson in restraint and modesty. 
like boxing. He also said that Wells was a filmmaker who shot like an exhibitionist and then edited like a censor. And I think that comes particularly relevant to what we're going to be seeing later in the film. And I really think you'll like that one. I really mm. think you'll get a kick out of it because it's very much, you know, two academics, two critics who really appreciate the movie, bringing in all kinds of interesting anecdotes and stories and just general affection for the movie. And it's just, there's a lot of thematic things they discuss. I just was really knocked out by the track. It's definitely one of my favorite commentaries of the year. So like I said, I was bummed that I didn't even mention it on the best of or favorites discs episode of just the disc. So I'm trying to make up for it here because I really liked it a lot, but on top of those, well, two and it came out pretty late. So in your it defense. did, which is unfortunate, <laughs> yeah. you know, in that respect, but on top of that, it's got, um, an interview with Simon Callow, which is really good. Mm-hmm. That's about 26 minutes. It's got Orson Welles on the Dick Cavett show in 1970. That's about 36 minutes. And it was surprising. I didn't get all the way through it, but it was surprisingly candid from the top, you know, just like more, not emotional, but just more honest than, and not, not that I don't expect that from Wells, but you know, he can be cagey. Uh, and I thought it might be one of those interviews, but he seemed more, in a uh, vulnerable place. So it's, it's genuinely moving and interesting. Uh, and then there's Joseph, Mc, Joseph McBride um, talks about the movie more about the studio. Who wrote, wrote a great book on him. Yes. Yes. Um, actually, just as a rem- reminder, uh, both James Nearmore and Jonathan Rosenbaum have written books on Wells as well. So those guys in the commentary really know what they're talking about uh, also, but yeah, Joe McBride's, uh, he's talking about studio politics among other things, about 29 minutes on that. Hmm. There's 18 minutes on, uh, the score by this Bernard Herman scholar, which is great. Like that's one thing people definitely don't talk about as much as the Bernard Herman score for the film. Uh, and then there's Peter Bogdanovich interviews with Wells, um, that I think he did in the sixties and it's all edited to be just stuff about the Ambersons. So, you know, Isn't there, little... um, is there still the 30 minutes of Robert Wise just apologizing or not? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> there should be. Oh, um, poor Robert Wise. I love Robert Wise. Yeah, but, poor guy. Yeah. Never. Bad but, position. But um, yes, the, there's 36 minutes of interviews with Wells, so it's audio only, mm-hmm. but it'll be a section, and then Bogdanovich will be like, and this is what this is, and he'll sort of give a little intro to the next section. But again, very candid, very uh, relaxed conversational interviews with Wells and obviously you get a sense of the relationship that Bogdanovich and him had and that he would be a little less guarded in terms of the interviews than he would be with you know straight up press so between those two commentaries and then what is it like you know more than two hours worth of other stuff and that's not even everything it's just a really great disc one of the best of the year and hats off to Criterion for treating uh a classic film like this properly and and getting it out there in a great way yeah and as as great a cinematographer as greg toland is uh of the citizen kane fame uh my favorite dp of all time is stanley cortez who shot this movie and, and he's just got such an interesting filmography uh in terms of the notables but you have this uh, night of the hunter uh and naked kiss uh and shot Cardor. so it's just you know wildly quite different uh films but you know it's still some really interesting stuff with uh you just he kind of always feels a little more 
I don't want to say gritty is the wrong word compared to the deep focus stuff in uh, Kane, but uh, another thing he started was Chinatown. And he actually was the DP for like about a week or two on Chinatown and Plansky ended up firing him because he was too old fashioned and wouldn't get right. He wouldn't do a handheld like following shot or something. Mm. And Sam Plansky was like, no, no, this isn't your kind of noir. This is, you know, my kind of noir, you know, and, and that caused friction. And that's why John Alonzo came on that film. And, you know, John Alonzo made that film his own and it's like a, you know, masterpiece. But, but I always thought that was interesting. It's just an interesting, I, I've tried finding more about Cortez over the time. I think he wrote a book um, that's quite hard to find based on the films he shot, but uh, just, you know, interesting when you look at those, just those three movies alone. Uh, very interesting. Yeah. Well, he's great. And he works really well in uh, certainly in a studio setting. And one of the things that comes out in all these features is how big the set was for the house and how it was a four walled set, meaning that they, they didn't have any, it was like a real, you know, you walk into it and you're in it. And so you can do a 360 degree shot. You can track through the whole place, which Wells definitely takes advantage of. But I feel like Cortez is, you know, perfectly suited for, I mean, among other things, because he can shoot low budget with Sam Fuller, but in a nice, you know, decent studio set, he can do great things. And he does. Yeah, no, it's, it's, I can't wait to watch it again. Of all the films, that was the one I bought first on Blu-ray, like opening the second it start, it came out. And then I think I remember telling you, I had to like rush to the store to buy it. And then I think I got home and the next day it came in the mail. Cause I had already ordered it months ago and forgotten. <laughs> so I suddenly had two copies of it. So, uh, for someone that's that nice. excited, I still haven't watched it. Uh, <laughs> Nicely done. that is how these things go. Uh, so that's our, our physical. Uh, so let's get into our 10 films because 2018 um i would say this just so people understand because i do think we come at it a little differently than a lot of end of year type lists uh we are well i i can speak for myself but i'm pretty sure you feel the same way i i I do i'm not a critic not a film critic and what i mean by that is i'm not a professional i'm not paid to watch go to the movies Uh, i I still pay my own way to go to the movies i pay when i uh go to get like new indies that have hit amazon and so because of that i you know i watch these movies for myself and uh definitely don't view myself as a critic so i also don't want to be bound by the rules and the way they watch critics watch movies um you know it's not to tell people thumbs up thumbs down and it's not these are the these are the subjective best 10 films because that's total load of bullshit there's no way you'll ever uh or or sorry objectively that all you have is the subjective and so i think approaching it more like what are 10 films that you find interesting and yes they might be close to being your top 10 but there's also no way we will ever seen all the oscar you know uh type movies that are coming out right about now kind of right towards the end of the year where critics get early access to that kind of stuff so there's a bunch of the main ones i mean i haven't even seen roma yet and it's just hit netflix uh dying to see it but um so that's part of of it oh you've seen part of okay um but so that's part of my thinking is that we've always we started the show with the idea of our doing our lists you know five films because because some movies wouldn't necessarily be obvious in somebody's top 10 but they are movies that should be seen and maybe a good reminder to people yeah and and to not to harp on the you know best of the year list or anything but i feel like once you look over you know half dozen or so of those you start to see a lot of titles that start to repeat 
And I think that's great that certain films are clearly getting high praise. But then I'm like, well, what about these other films that may or may not deserve attention? But I'd rather talk about those than a movie that's on every single top 10 list. You know, that's just not interesting to me. I mean, it's not. OK, that's not fair. I don't want to say it's not interesting, but I just feel like it. At a point, it's like, okay, yes, and what else can we talk about? Yeah. Um, what are some movies that you're going to rewatch? That's the other problem I have with best of the year list is it's, for me, they tend to lean towards movies that people see one time, and they may say that they're going to watch them again, but they probably won't. And if they do watch that kind of movie over and over again, then we then they and I are not in the same boat because I am always looking for the kind of movie that I can watch over and over again and enjoy or be moved by or whatever but uh, the one-timers are the movies that I think end up a lot of times slotting into critics favorites and I'm just like yeah I I get uh, that approach but that's not thinking you know 20 30 years down the road as a classic you know i mean well it's a war it's an awards game too a lot of people are getting in you know making these lists they start repeating and then that becomes the award contention group and that really when i was maybe 20 that interested me and i still until you know i I like i still enjoy watching the oscars but it's just for fun i don't buy into much of that anymore and and take much of it that seriously and i agree with you like uh, um one thing that monty hellman said once that i never forgot and he was paraphrasing uh jean cocteau about art but he said in his experience like a, a perfect in quote marks perfect movies aren't quite as interesting because it's the flaw that allows a thing needs a bit of a flaw or something that's not consistent about it so you can pick it up and hold it in your hand if it was a piece of art but as as a movie too and the movies that we all kind of like where we talk about Danny Perry's movies and cult movies is there's something there that you want to hold and hold on to because it's not there's an access point that's not just perfection um, and you know perfect studio quality movie making Uh, there's some other quality that that interests you and hooks you and that that definitely definition of art always kind of why why we're drawn to uh, certain types of movies always stuck with me a little bit and um yeah hopefully we hopefully there'll be a couple people maybe are less familiar with on these and but again we're also not just doing this to be like oh wow just to be edgy and tell you movies that you've never heard of really it's still movies that we thought uh, are 10 movies that are worth um really highlighting uh at the end of this year yeah but and i i, I guess i have one other caveat i am um I am. I get why people always say, "Oh, your movie, your list should, you know, be completely mixed with all the different genres and all the different types of movies." But because I'm also on a horror show, it's very hard for me not to want to largely separate, for the most part, the list. And that's really just more about me. It's not so much that I don't. I think of horror as lesser, of course, because to me, it's not. Uh, Hereditary won't be in this list for me. But if it was, it'd be my number two film of the year um, in my overall list of movies. But it was my number one. Uh, my shockwaves list and so there's a handful of movies that won't be mentioned here if you want to hear you know 10 horror films go listen to that uh, and it's not out of any snobbery towards horror it's just because i need an excuse to also talk about 10 more movies <laughs> there's there's a lot yeah. of other things there is one film that repeats on the two list uh because it's more of a cult type movie but um but yeah so that's 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 how i'm coming at it um there's a couple i have a couple cheats but not too many um (laughs) i try to be as cheat free as possible but it's always a little hard uh when you're only highlighting this many movies yeah um well let me Mm -hmm. kick it off here so something that happens in my house from time to time my wife and my daughter go to bed (laughs) my 19 year old son is living at home right now going to community college and 
he is out and about. He's 19, so he 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 does uh, he does uh, DoorDash, which is kind of like a Uber Eats kind of thing. So he'll go and he'll come home, and sometimes I'll be watching a movie, and sometimes my son will get hooked on it and sit down and watch it with me. And just the other night, I'm watching. Actually, this was Christmas Eve. Uh, I'm watching Destination Wedding. Oh, okay, a late edition. <laughs> I knew you were watching this, but I didn't know it was going to make a list. Yes. Okay. I don't understand how even after Keith did what he did to you, and even in the midst of the shame of being here, you can possibly still be mooning over it. <sighs> That's because you're a monkey who doesn't understand the human condition. Having met you, I understand why it's a condition. You don't stop loving a person just because they injure you. It helps. Well, love is not rational. Clearly. But how could you even like Keith? I never said I liked him. Then how can you love him? Love has nothing to do with like. Healthy people would disagree. <laughs> Healthy people are thick. Isn't there a part of you that just wants to wish him well and move on? Mm, most of me wants him to be found in an icy river. I mean, so this is where, you know, people are going to laugh at me getting all uppity about critics and, um, you know, critically acclaimed films. Uh I've got a couple of my my bottom two I know were not necessarily praised by critics, especially my number nine. But anyway, th- these are enjoyable films to me. And so it was super funny because my son sits down and he's like, is this a John Wick sequel? You know, <laughs> yeah. what's going on here? Because he literally looks, Keanu looks like he's still in the John Wick, yeah. you know, sort of look. Um, but it, it, it ended up being a movie that he and I just sat and watched. So my son and I watched Destination Wedding <laughs> on, on Christmas Eve, and it was delightful. Um, I mean, it is about two very grumpy people, um, two emotionally broken strangers that meet on the way to a destination wedding. And over the course of the weekend, they sort of become a bit more drawn to each other, though they are initially sort of repulsed by each other. But it's very much like, I felt to me, and I may be giving you too much credit, but a bit of a throwback to, you know, uh, the It Happened One Night kind of screwball comedy combined with the Link Later Before Sunrise kind of thing where you have what is more or less a two-person play. They are, they are in every scene and interacting in every scene in long dialogue exchanges and somehow it works and almost nobody interacts with them throughout the whole movie you know I, I can't there might be one waiter or something but for the most part it's literally just them talking about life and their theories about love and it's it doesn't sound like it would be any good and and it's one of those movies where the dialogue is just a little too clever for its own good and that could drive you crazy mm-hmm. and that could be the thing that puts you out of the movie but for me it just walked that fine line of being just clever enough and just funny enough and just poignant enough that I was ultimately touched by it. And I think I just love those two actors so much that that really carried it for me too. And and apparently they've been friends for, you know, 30 years and Winona even said something about them being, she thinks they're married because they were married by some kind of uh, European minister during the shooting of Dracula back in 94. And so she's like, I think we're actually married. Have they been in any other films together besides Dracula? I I don't think so, but I might be forgetting one. But they have a great chemistry together, you know? And Keanu does not get roles like this very much. And apparently the director said that, you know, they... They had her in mind for the part and she read it and said, you know, I know who'd be great for this and he never gets roles like this. Give it to Keanu. 
and I bet he'll take it. And he did. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so it looks like a a cheesy, um, you know, big budget. It's got like a sort of a bland name and everything and two big stars. So you're like, oh, that's not going to be interesting. That'll be some stupid romantic comedy. But again, it's a little more poignant and it's more like an indie than it is uh, a straight Hollywood movie. So it's, but it's very funny in parts. And I know that there's parts of it that you specifically would think are funny. There may be parts of the dialogue that will drive you crazy and parts of these characters that will drive you crazy. But there was definitely moments in the dialogue where I'm like, Elric would think that's funny. I know he would. Um, so anyway, Dark Horse Contender snuck in at the 11th hour. You know, it's fun. See, I like that. That already makes your list a good list. I mean, that one definitely was on my radar to see because they're just saying about their chemistry. I knew it looked kind of cheesy, but it was like, yeah, I'd watch that. It so does. I definitely would hit that. It does. But if you're into the two-person, you know... Again, Richard Linklatery kind of thing. Definitely check it out. It's on Amazon Prime. If you have Amazon Prime, I think it was made for Amazon. I'm not sure if it was or not, but it's it's definitely there on Amazon Prime right now. You can watch it. So uh, maybe give it a look. Okay. Um, That's my number ten. Destination Wedding. Number ten. So my number ten. I've got a choice, and then something I have to mention because there's so many similarities. Uh, I was at a horror trivia, the final for the year. We do horror trivia at, out here in Burbank. And um, I saw uh, one of our listeners slash filmmaker, Dennis Widmer, uh, who we were just talking about earlier. Uh, and he's just come off uh, directing the new Pet Symmetry movie. Um, but he said to me, uh, if you haven't done your list there's, for the horror, he said, there's this one movie I just saw and it's just crazy, crazy gripping movie. Uh, I don't. I, I took his recommendation. I'd never even heard of this film uh, and thought it was a brilliant movie. Didn't really think of it as horror, even though it ends in kind of a thrillery way. Um, definitely much more of a domestic drama, intense domestic drama, uh, but an, a remarkable debut. And it's called Custody. Um, and it's directed by Xavier Legrand. It's a French film uh, that is his first film. I think he's an actor turned director. Uh, and man, this film is, I mean, I only started like two nights ago. This film is intense. It, it stars, uh, the, as the most intense dad of the year, uh, Dennis Minichet, <laughs> who you will all remember. I was, it was driving me fucking crazy watching this movie going, where have I seen this guy before? And then I realized he's the father in the key in one of the greatest scenes in the last decade of cinema Inglorious Bastards opening scene. He's the guy being interviewed. Uh, yes, oh, wow. so he's the guy who's actually hiding uh, the Jews, you know, downstairs. So and moving his foot to try to hide them and stuff. So in this, he's the complete opposite. <laughs> he's much more. Uh, it's it's really one of the most intense roles I've seen anyone play in a long time. It's um, it opens in a very routine procedural court uh, in France, a little different, kind of behind closed doors uh, with their lawyers as he's. His wife, ex-wife, is is divorcing him, and she wants sole custody of their kids. And he's trying to present why he, you know, deserves some uh, visitation rights. She's saying he's violent and, uh, you know, a, b- a bad influence on the kids. And he's coming off as like, no, no, I'm, you know, just trying. And life's, you know, so. But it's so routine that in the first ten minutes, I was like, oh, this is gonna not be very interesting. But it's very matter of fact. Um, and then it just it just goes all in to the emotion of what it's like to be so he does get he gets visitation rights on weekends but you realize pretty quickly he's not that interested in spending time with his son it's really about trying to get back to the wife because he you know it's kind of uh, still very jealous and um 
man, this was a film that when I went on to Letterboxd afterwards, most of the things said, don't read about this movie, just watch it. And I kind of want to be careful because there was one element that was said to me, which made me want to watch it, um, which is that I, I won't actually say the subgenre that it enters, but let's just say the last 25 minutes is the most intense of any movie I saw this year in terms of just like full on, you have no idea where it's going to go. Uh, and it's, it's, it involves the, uh, the, you know, the father kind of coming after it, a couple characters. Um, I won't, I won't go beyond mm. that, but it was enough to, when Dennis told me that it was enough to get me to watch the movie. And then when I realized what it actually is, it's just a, it's a really, and it's kind of sad because, you know, the family custody movies are always a bummer, obviously, um, because, you know, people are being torn apart, uh, you know, in the, in the family unit, but this one goes to a, you know, a, kind of a thrilling, uh, place, but really suspenseful and, and exciting and performances freaking brilliant um by him and the mother and the son the kid in this movie it's just like you know, scenes of him sobbing and just you know he's probably 10 and you're like man he's just uh letting all out. anyway this was a total dark horse not a movie that i'd ever heard of so it's on amazon streaming and i would you know for those who are into things like you know michael haneke movies and things you know if that's the kind of intensity you can handle in your life then uh then i would give it a shot um but i had to pair it in a sense because another movie i watched last night was so close in terms of the theme but the total opposite movie and that's um the movie thunder road i'll start with myself my wife left me a year and a half ago there laughing up i slept in my car three weeks jerry saw it and that right jerry yeah i brought you breakfast thank you so much for doing that jerry that meant a lot back then you're drunk i'm not drunk i'm angry i realize that i'll go no calm down by um, also an actor turned director, Jim Cummins, who won South by with this feature um, and his short film, which I was very familiar with, which is a long take 10 minute movie of a son who's a cop uh, saying farewell to his mother at a funeral and then trying to play a Springsteen song and dancing to say goodbye while also bursting out crying and also really poorly singing uh, the Springsteen song Thunder Road. The short's hilarious. The movie, the feature is adapting that short into a feature. So it's basically a guy loses his mom and his wife has left him and he's trying to get a fight for custody of his daughter so it's very similar but he's this totally kind of pathetic funny constantly bursting out crying cop so it's a very you know and it's a very it's a super indie like low budget um you know it's done very well overseas like and i i think i he's got a really interesting uh twitter handle where he really talks about independent filmmaking and gives a lot of good filmmaking advice to people and you know talks about how you just have to do it and this is how he did it but i i was just so struck by you know how similar the the storylines of these two films were but they could not be more different in how they execute and make you feel i called it my domestic daddy double um (laughs) (laughs) so so even though technically i'd say custody uh is the number 10 i would thunder road because i only just saw it is one worth mentioning i really enjoyed it it's funny and strange but uh you know yeah very very strange pairing of films but um i think worth a look nice i've heard of neither Got me there. Well, well, Jim Cummings does follow Pure Cinema on um, recently. I oh, I'm sorry. I've heard of Thunder Road. My oh, yeah, bad. Yeah. I've heard of Thunder Road. I just haven't seen it. Uh, yeah, the yeah. other one I hadn't heard of at all. No, I hadn't. Yeah, either. Um, so I'm going to lose some more people with my <laughs> number nine. Uh-oh. Um, well, I just, here's the thing. Again, I'm aiming for movies that I can come back to. And I've already come back to this movie three or four times since I thought saw it in the theater. And yeah, it's a broad comedy. You know, that's something that 
I enjoy. As you've heard, if you've listened to this show, you know, broad comedies definitely come up. You know, uh, game-related movies come up. Um, you know, Midnight Madness and Scavenger Hunt are movies I like. These are not necessarily great movies. So there's something about a game dynamic that I like. It's almost like a sports movie thing, but there's also a camaraderie element. Anyway, I'm talking about Tag. Hey! Hey, Anna. Hey, Chili. How are you? Good. Nice to see you. What are you doing here? I was I was walking by and thought I'd pop in and, and say hi to you and Roger. Yeah, we're doing great. Where's Hoagie? Oh, um, he's, um, you know, uh... Oh, shit. Hogan's in uh, the library. Dad, Dad, what month is it? May. Mm-mm. You're not getting by me. Anna, are you okay? Uh, all right. All right. Now so, you're joking. Yeah. Yeah. So like, again, some people have seen this and they're, they're just shaking their heads right now, maybe turning off the show um, because they just weren't into it. But there's something about this movie, which is all about a group of guys who've been playing the same game of, of tag for 30 years. And it's based on a true story. Uh, they do show the actual guys at the end of the movie and they obviously look nothing like uh, Jeremy Renner or Ed Helms or uh, John Hamm. Um, and I have a feeling their Johnson. wives don't look like the wives in that movie either. But <laughs> No, I'm pretty sure they don't. These guys look, look very Midwestern to me. Um, but it was a cute little button at the end. Anyway, it's funny because of the way they relate to each other. The opening scene is basically Ed Helms' character interviewing for a job with the best friend character from Get Out. Oh, I can't remember that actor's name right now, but I love him. He's in Uncle Drew as well. Um, interviewing for a job at this company... For, to be a janitor and you find out that really he's just there to tag John Hamm's character so he's gotten a job as a janitor <laughs> to tag him Elaborate. and then the opening scene is setting up this idea that they need to go and get Jerry who is played by Jeremy Renner uh, because it, he says he's quitting after this year and basically they play every May for the past 30 years anytime in May you can be tagged um, but Jerry has never been tagged and so Jerry's getting married. They're going to go crash his wedding, and it becomes sort of a thing like that. What are you doing? Hoagie, what do you want? You tagged me. I'm it, okay? You're sitting there like I didn't just tell you. We got to deal with this right now. Because we got a real shot at Jerry this year. You say that every year. Yeah, but this year's different. You say that every year. Yeah, but this year's really different. You said that last year. I know, you're right. But this year's actually different. Because we know exactly where he's going to be and when. The wedding celebration of Susan and Jerry, Saturday, May 31st. He's a sitting duck. We gotta join forces. We get Jerry now, or we die. What? Eventually, you know what I mean. Come on, Bob. You gonna grow old or you gonna keep playing? Keep playing. That is the right answer. It's fun to see the energy of it and the cast is really strong. Like I said, uh, I really like Jake Johnson. Uh, he's one of my honorable mentions is uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Mm. And I, I've just been a fan of Jake Johnson for a long time. I think he's very funny and uh, he's from the new girl. 
Yeah, from the new girl. He's yeah. he's just Jurassic a Park guy that well. I he's good in that. Yeah, I just find him amusing. So he plays like the stoner character, which they lean into a little too hard. That's one of the broad things about the movie. But wouldn't he be he like John, a decade he, younger than the rest of them? He he does look a little younger than the but they all they're all pretty young. But yeah, now that I think about it, he does. Well, look John pretty John Hamm's like fifty, I think. <laughs> yeah. So it is. I didn't even think about it. somehow that doesn't. Well, he has a big beard. I think they gave him a big beard for that reason. Yeah. It's crazy that you bring that up because you're totally right. But it didn't affect me the three or four times I've seen the movie. <laughs> okay, but um, but I like the soundtrack. The soundtrack is very kitschy and, you know, uh, sort of 90s throwback, you know, to when I was in college. And um, there's a couple good joke songs that they do. And I don't know. It's overall, it's just very funny. Uh, the Jerry character played by Jeremy Renner is basically like you know he's a physical trainer he's like a ninja he has like little moments of like equalizer where he's this time slows down and he (laughs) sees all the people trying to tag him and he it becomes ridiculous anyway it's very broad comedy and it's got a very hokey ending but i totally get hooked by the hokey ending and i'm into it and so it's just a you know kind of one of those movies that i think is going to be a sleeper hit for some people there'll be some that will watch it and think this is ridiculous garbage but there's some that i think will find it like we were talking about in the danny perry school of uh lesser appreciated movies comedies that critically didn't get much praise that people have adopted and have become a favorite i'm not saying it's my favorite movie but like i said i haven't watched too many movies three or four times this year uh and so there's something to it that is just funny enough in the way that these guys relate to each other the way they give each other shit the addendums that they have like no asshole punching and other things like that um are very funny i i would think it would amuse you on some level but i may be oversized i saw, I saw so. like 10 minutes of it but like probably at the midway point when i was channel surfing one night i just i think ed helms was like in a hospital bed and i just started watching yeah. this movie for oh that's more towards the end okay actually. and i and I, what i was seeing was amusing but i was like i, I gotta stop because this is you know yeah i don't know you gotta watch from the, the from the, the beginning setup is great because there's a whole like heist movie getting the band back together thing which is fun um that th- i love when movies start anyway i'm talking way too long about tag <laughs> but but i really did like it and i did debate whether or not i should actually put it on the list but i was like you know what i enjoyed this movie enough and it's available on vod right now it'll probably end up on netflix at some point if it does i'd say you know give it give it a watch maybe have a beer and is you know, that, and that one is directed yargos lethemus is that right yes yargos is the <laughs> yargos is lethemus is the tag <laughs> um, but, the but tag. every list is going to have the favorite so you already know you have to see that so now you can see tag yeah i'm not um, the favorite is not on my list and that is not in any way to i haven't seen it yet not because i didn't want to but because i knew yeah there's a lot that's of those, a definite you know what i mean i gotta see that i, I, I liked people, it a lot actually i saw it about a week ago it didn't make this list either i i liked it a little it was a little less me than some of his previous movies especially sacred deer which i loved but i could see why yeah. it's more popular because it's it's really a, it's a perfect now movie in a lot of ways but um it's no tag i'll tell you that uh <laughs> sorry yargus if you're listening oh yargus <laughs> um but uh okay well for those who are still listening yeah stay with us come on no i think it's got some good picks here um no it's good i I actually prefer that you put i I think this will become very boring when we only pick our the movies that everyone wants you to pick um so that's good and and i actually would watch it the trailer definitely at least hooked me i was like okay but i just couldn't believe that it could stay good and i worried about one of my least favorite movies i hate to talk about movies we don't like but a movie i really didn't like on its initial release was very bad things there's something in the tone of that movie that i hated at the time like a kind of a weird misogyny 
misogyny. Way more mean spirited. Yeah. And I don't I have a problem with it too because of the mean spiritedness. Yeah. This this is not like that. Yeah, and I think that so, was my my only concern was like, uh, just yeah. you know. So cool, cool, good to know. Um, my number yeah. nine is one that I I might have mentioned briefly on Shockwaves a while back because it's not really a horror film. Um, again, it's so fun when you get uh, recommendations from people. This was from uh, our kind of collective secretary at the school where I work, uh, and she one day had just seen this film in the UK. She had been in Scotland and just it was her favorite film of the year, and she kept talking about this movie. And then eventually, I, I managed to see it. It was called Beast. You he doesn't love you he can't love you're sick do you think it's me and it overpowered you I want you to tell me that you didn't do it how can you ask me that and it's directed by Michael Pierce. It was his uh, first feature, um, and it, it's it's an incredibly intense, uh, quite shocking at times gothic romance. I guess you would call it's um, set in the island called Jersey, which is uh, off the coast, I guess, of England. And it, the backdrop of this movie is set is the only thing I had heard of. I, I wasn't sure if it was a literal adaptation of this story, but it's not. It's just the backstory is uh, the director grew up on an uh, on this island and. Um, it, it, there was a, a kind of a rapist killer in the 60s and 70s terrorizing the place who they called um, the Beast of Jersey. And he, you know, just the, watching some of the doc after the movie ended, I looked up what the backstory was and it was much more much darker and grimmer than what it is in this movie um in terms of you know just is breaking into you know women's houses and uh committing atrocities in this it's more that there's been a series of redheads who have been murdered um on this island <coughs> and some missing people and um we, you know we of course the the main character is this character Maul played by a really brilliant performance by uh, Jesse Buckley. She's really great. And it's a real star turn um, and she's a redhead. And so you're instantly, you get a sense of, Oh, she could be in danger kind of character. It has a bit of a modern fairy tale vibe to the way it's filmed. And it's a pretty simple setup. She's in a very kind of oppressive family structure where she's not really able to be herself. And she, for a 20 year old, she feels very stunted. She feels like she's more treated like, you know, 16 year old, um, I think her mother's Natasha Richardson or the, no, um, the Richardson from blow up. Um, and you know, it just feels like a very strict family. She decides to like leave her own birthday party and go out raving clubbing. Cause it almost feels like it's set in a different era, but then she goes out clubbing and some kind of slime ball, uh, is trying to hook up with her on her way home early in the morning and looks like he's going to force himself on her. And then suddenly he's shot with like a, a pellet gun and this, you know, brooding, uh, you know, dangerous seeming guy played by Johnny Flynn, who I think is a musician, um, a character called Pascal comes in and kind of helps her out, gets her away from this guy. And slowly the whole movie is basically a setup of, uh, he becomes a suspect in these murders. And while their romance is blooming, he doesn't seem at all like a murderer and she doesn't see that side of him. She really wants to believe, but once it's kind of a story about once, doubt creeps into a relationship how that keeps magnifying and the problems that creates between them and it is really it's it's a beautifully made film i'm i'm a little shocked it hasn't been on a lot more lists because it doesn't seem like such an outsider to me it seems like a modern like it could be a modern classic um once people you know start discovering it, especially for a certain type of people it's kind of like if twilight was 
the best version of what twilight could be would be a movie like this um but this is a lot darker like i wouldn't show someone too young this movie because of the kind of you know it's it's also more sexual you know it's um but it's i did i would recommend people check out the trailer just to see the kind of style i'm talking about um but the backdrop is really dark and there's a really dark uh background to their romance and where it's going and it surprised me where it ended up actually uh but her performance is uh he's really good too but uh, Jesse Buckley's you know pretty incredible and there's just a sense of doom around her from frame one like when she first appears you're like oh this feels like a character who is somehow doomed by this you know uh, the society around her but I, I really like this movie it's a little hard to classify it's it's could be considered a horror kind of setup but it's much more of a romantic gothic drama um, so if any of that ticks your bells, but it was, it was a nice surprise for me. I, lo- I love putting in a movie that could just be cheesy or something. And it, it, it just was very stylish and, uh, definitely I would want to see the next film by this director for sure. I'm totally into that one. And that's one that, uh, I didn't get a chance to see yet, but I remember you talking about it and I definitely made note at the time. Yeah, I think it'll surprise some people because it just, you know, it's not as grim as the real story of the Beast of Jersey. He definitely loosely based it on, the, you know, his memories of that time. Because when you look that up, that's just grim. Like, you, that's the kind of movie I don't want to see. <laughs> um, but it's much more uh, in the background than the foreground of this movie. Um, but yeah, I, I think I stayed away initially when she first told me about it because I just saw the word Beast and saw the cover of two people looking at each other and go, oh, it's a modern Beauty and the Beast retelling and there might be there's a thin strand of that just because of the types of characters they are but it's not that kind of movie much more cool. much more gritty than that cool i really liked it yeah. i'm into it beast beast um okay so i'm a sucker for father-daughter movies mm-hmm. um you know i i think it's interesting father teenage daughter movies i find myself drawn to even though mine is only nine i think it's sort of like this projection into the future and wondering what our relationship will be like in you know six seven eight years so i get easily drawn in by stories like that so this one could be more flawed and i might not be able to tell the difference because i'm such a sucker but um it is called hearts beat loud and it is with nick offerman and his daughter is played by Kersey Clemens. How's it going, kiddo? It's jam sesh time. No. Come on. When jam sesh time arrives, we have to put aside childish things like homework and med school. Please don't touch my thing. It's jam sesh time. I have to close the shop. I'm sorry, Frank. I held off on raising the rent as long as I could. I mean, it's time. My girl starts UCLA in the fall. You can't make your heart feel like what? Just a bunch of words. I want it that way. They want what? What way? I'm sorry, are you bringing up the Backstreet Boys? It's actually a pretty good song. We don't always get to do what we love, so we need to love what we do. I never realized that was your secret. Yep. Yeah. You've been trying to start a band with me since I was like 12. We're not a band. We're not a band. I like it. I don't want to be in a band. And even if I did, I'm not going to be in one with my dad. And the basic story is that Nick Offerman plays a dude who owns a record shop in the hip Brooklyn neighborhood of Red Hook. Uh, I think it's Red Hook Records. He's a single dad, and he is in a position now to send his very academically inclined daughter, Sam, off to college. And so it looks like he's probably going to close up his shop. 
but in an effort to sort of stay connected with her and maybe get her to not go away, he pitches the idea that they should be in a father-daughter band together. <laughs> they had they had had uh, sort of weekly jam sessions where she plays keyboard, he plays guitar. They just hang out and, and put stuff together. Um, and she's initially resistant to the idea, but they do end up playing together, and it's really heartwarming. Uh, there's some great supporting players, like Ted Danson plays this bar owner friend of his that he goes and hangs out with. And Dan- Danson's always great in that capacity, a nice backup role. I mean, he can certainly play a lead too, but as a backup, he's great. Um, so he's nice. And then Tony Collette uh, shows up, and, and she's sort of the landlord of his record shop. They have a sort of friendly relationship. And I don't know, the, I find the music to be pretty good. I guess they wrote four original songs from the movie. And I, I think that kind of stuff where you got a father, daughter singing together, emotional pop music, it, it just really cuts right into me, you know? Um, so it's, it's, it's one that your mileage may vary, but I, overall I was really charmed by it. And, and I think it was definitely one where I'm like, I need to talk about this because I don't feel like I know people have seen it, but I, I definitely didn't see it on any list. So maybe it's not good in the sense of the way that they're looking for, but I think it is again, like destination wedding, a very charming movie. So that's, that's a lot of fun. Uh, hearts beat loud. This one was, um, playing. Oh, I was just gonna oh, say it's streaming sorry. on Amazon and stuff. I mean, I don't, it's not prime or anything, but it was playing where? Oh, well it was, yeah, it was, it was playing live on the person in front of me on a plane. Um, yeah. no, it was, I was on a plane watching the new Jurassic Park movie and, you know, there's, I don't know, I, I, I found it a real mixed bag and I kept looking up and watched <laughs> this movie. I probably watched a good 20 minutes of it without the sound <laughs> because I was just really interested. I was trying to, I didn't realize it was a father daughter. I thought it was like an older guy trying to date a younger girl and then Tony Collette was in oh, it, but I was yeah, definitely interested. I was definitely like curious to know more about it. So I should have stopped, um, I stopped the dinosaurs and just watched it. But uh, next time, next you time. You would have liked it more than that. Yeah, no, it, it looked pretty good. Um, uh, my next one, number eight, uh, is the, one of the reasons I just love film festivals is the uh, unexpected that you get from a film festival and also your captive audience seeing something that feels like the, for the first time. So I uh, saw so this one at Chattanooga Film Festival, and it's, you know, if you told me that a two-and-a-half-hour-plus black-and-white folk epic uh, horror weirdo uh, movie. I don't know how else to describe it. Would be one of my favorites of the year. Um, I'd be surprised. And I think one of the hard things is this has been a year, in my opinion, where way too many movies have been too long. Uh, just it's really just incredible when you really go through uh, all so many films on Netflix that should be two hours or are two ten or two twenty or just and 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 most of them really shouldn't be like. And I've had that issue with just more movies than I can count. This is a movie that really earns its running time, but that doesn't mean it will be any easier to watch on Netflix or. Amazon, and that's one of the things about a festival where you're captive to seeing that. You know, this is a, uh, a film called November. And it's directed by Reiner Sarnet, and it's a 
uh, Estonian movie. So I, you know, I don't even, I, I don't, I don't think I'd ever seen a film from Estonia. Um, and for it to be like this crazy epic, it's uh, set in a poor Estonian village in a, you know, who knows what time period, but because it's a kind of a folky uh, kind of setting, and it's all these peasants who use magic and uh, folklores to survive winter. Um, but it's really focuses in on this one young girl who's being promised to older, grosser men, but she's in love with this other guy. And it and it's truly when I say this, and I've seen some weird fucking movies. This might be the weirdest movie I've ever seen. And I, the, get out. I, I, trust me, I, the people wow. the people I saw this movie with and, and were constantly looking at each other, going, "Holy shit!" And not weird in that it doesn't make <laughs> sense way, because that's that could be just bad storytelling. This is brilliantly crafted, but it's just so different. Uh, it, it's 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 it really from the start. I thought, okay, it's going to be a witch horror film. Cool, I could get my head around it. And then then there's these creatures that they because everyone's kind of suffering they want to like steal extra crops or steal a cow and at the start of this movie to steal something you have to basically sell your soul to this kind of devil-like creature who's in the forest once you sign the book he will then give you that your spirit kind of enters something called a crat and the crat is like made of household utensils so in this case it could be (laughs) blades from a lawnmower with a weird skull and suddenly that thing comes to life and that helps you do things like chores and at one point they create one of them and it picks up a cow and it's flying through the air and you're watching this estonian black and white art house horror film going how the fuck are they do-? like it's it's really almost indescribable how but wow. there's also a snowman sequence in this where one of these crats is a snowman and it has like the most touching philosophy as it's slowly melting and breaking your heart it's like <laughs> one of the most but it's really hard to put your hands around because it's not i don't think it's sticking to any um real lore like it's a mixture of different lores from this culture and so a lot of it's so bizarre i think one of the ideas is like oh the bl- kind of if you've seen the witch it's like oh black philip you know is going to come through the town and he's gonna you know decide which of us to kill and which one's crops to kill everyone quickly put put your asses out and everyone face forward so as when they see all our asses they'll think we have two asses and if they think we have two asses they will be the devil will be confused and keep moving <laughs> like really bizarre so, and yet it's not like meant to always be funny funny it's more just like bizarre but and i know i'm probably not at all it's a hard movie to sell but it also has like a werewolf scene it has weird spirits it has a weird devil thing but i would never i would i didn't put this on my horror list because i never felt it was a horror film it definitely is going for something more than just the feeling of horror it's going for uh something just really fascinating interesting cast uh there's a baron who kind of the rich part of this town owns this house uh and played by Dieter Laser who is the human centipede doctor in this very art house movie and it's just a very good use for the whole time I was like where's I know that guy looks like Udo Kier and couldn't place it until you know towards the end um but no I saw this with a lot of a lot of our friends uh you know Rebecca McKendry Morgan Peter Brown and everyone just had the sense that they had seen this movie that was unlike any movie that had ever existed for good or bad I knew a lot of people were like what the hell was that and everyone was looking at me going Elric's gonna love that and I was like guilty (laughs) as charged I do love this movie uh very hard to explain but it's definitely got a good love story at its core but it's definitely a very strange one and the actress in this kind of reminded me of the actress from uh, in terms of a performance from uh, um, what's the first thing we were talking about Cold War um, ha- she has a similar quality uh, very watchable and uh, yeah this one I know is on Amazon and Netflix even now I think um, and I, I know it's going to be a harder ask on that but I would say watch the first like 
10 minutes and you'll get a pretty good sense of if you can do this movie or not. Um, <laughs> it's definitely unique. I, have, I haven't seen anything that I could even compare it to really film-wise. Very nice. That's November. That sounds intriguing. November. So when you have 2.5 hours to spare, <laughs> <laughs> jump in. To lose your mind. That sounds good. Um, all right. I've definitely talked to you about this one, and I think I brought it up even on Shockwaves when I was on in terms of something I had just seen back then. Uh, and it is Assassination Nation. My name is Lily Coulson, and I'm 18 years old. These are my three best friends, M, Bex, and Sarah. And this is the story of how my town, Salem, lost its mind. But let's start at the beginning. Dude, the principal got hacked. I'll give him like five days before he commits suicide. I'm sorry, I just don't have any sympathy for people that get hacked. For real? There's two types of people in this world. People that have come to terms with privacy is just dead. Then there's the old people that are still trying to fight it. What do you have to hide anyway, Lil? A million nudes, super gross porn history, and like super pervy texts about almost everyone at this school. Me too. Me three. <laughs> I think it was some like socially conscious vigilante hacker guy. I live for this type of scandal, to be honest. Yeah, I was hoping to see this before you did this list, but I still haven't gotten to it. I'm very curious what you think. It's another one. I, I feel like I've got a lot of these movies where the dialogue, you could be okay with it, but could drive you crazy. Um, this is not quite as, I don't know, I, I guess annoying isn't the right word. So what was the, so there was the final girls and then there was, what was the other one? Tragedy girls. Yeah. Okay, so I had certain expectations going into Tragedy Girls, and I ended up being a bit disappointed by it. They were just too smarmy and too unlikable for me. And this movie, some will see as falling into the same trap, but I feel like there are certain things done here to humanize some of these girls that I think helps push it over into a territory of not being just straight smarmy. Uh, even though they are, you know, definitely witty and clever girls and all that stuff. Uh, The basic pitch would be Heathers meets The Purge. Very basic summation. Um, It's certainly more complex movie than that. But I think what I like about it is that it's got some interesting ideas that it's exploring. Um, A lot of it has to do with the idea that this small town... Uh, called Salem has first its mayor and then some other prominent people in town. They get hacked. Their phones get hacked or their computers get hacked and all their emails and texts and everything suddenly gets dumped out onto the internet and everybody can sift through it and find out, you know, for instance, that the mayor is uh, a transvestite or, you know, whatever. Um, But it starts to happen to more and more people and it starts causing this, you know, mob mentality within the town and everybody's paranoid and afraid of each other and it just escalates and escalates. But it is very clever and and very funny in parts, but also stylish. Um, Like I said, the sort of dialogue cleverness could get to some people, but I I think if you stick with it, you'll start to get to a place where you're comfortable with it and it, it should just flow. But I was really pleasantly surprised by this one. I saw this one by myself in the theater. 
because I'd heard about it on Twitter a little bit. Maybe, maybe Patrick Bromley was talking about it or something. I can't remember, but, um, it sounded intriguing enough and I just rewatched it again. It's now on demand. It can be rented and bought that way. And, um, I was just was going to put on, you know, the first 15 minutes last night and ended up watching an hour too late at night because I just find it compelling. Um, but yeah, what it has to say about the horror of sort of cyberbullying and mob mentalities, both online and in person, you know, um, are pretty thought provoking mm-hmm. and just the idea of how horrifying it would be to have all your private stuff dumped out there. And that, you know, we really think we're safe uh, when in fact this kind of thing, you know, could happen on some level to somebody relatively easily, it seems. Um, so we're kind of living in this bubble of illusion that we think we have privacy and we actually don't and how uh, little things taken out of context can totally demonize just about anybody. So, and that's sort of how the internet functions, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, it's got a lot of interesting ideas on it, on its mind. And it's a high school movie. And, uh, I thought the performances were good and, you know, it's, it just stood out to me. It was, uh, it was interesting for sure. There's a good interview with the director on Elvis Mitchell's show, The Treatment, and it definitely made me want to watch it, his approach and why he was trying to make the movie he was making, making it in a way that felt like ADHD or something he said for this generation and just all the the way technology moves so fast. He was trying to make something that would match that kind of speed or something like that, which I thought was Mm. interesting. Um, So, you know, I'm definitely interested. And also the um, editor of Rue Morgue, and she's one of the podcasters on um, Faculty of Horror. That was her number one of the year uh, when Whoa. she was on Shockwave. She mentioned that was her like pick of the year. So you know, definitely made me uh, curious because also it obviously didn't do great when it opened. It was kind of here and gone. It had a lot of advertising, but it seemed to disappear pretty quickly. Um, yeah. So I imagine it was a financial, um, you know, bit of a dud on that level. So which always makes for a good cult movie. So. Exactly. Yep. Very interesting. Um, speaking of cult movies, this is definitely one of the most culty on my list. I don't know if we've talked about it, so I'm gonna. My gut tells me it's going to be on your list, but uh, let's let's find out. I also saw this in Chattanooga, uh, and this film is probably the most entertaining movie on my list. I've got to say, like I was probably m- most entertained by this movie this year, and that is Low Life. Why do you have a swastika tattoo on your face? Here we go. What are you mixed up in? Here's what you're gonna do for me. Mm-mm. I got two strikes and a swastika tattoo. Ain't no way I'm helping you kidnap some poor girl. You remember uh uh-uh from Greenlee? Remember how many pieces of him they found? That was Teddy being chill, man. That's Teddy. Being chill. Damn, G. Not on my list. Okay. Have you seen it? Not yet. Okay. This might be... I'd be shocked if this isn't a film that you end up loving. Like, and I mean, maybe deeply, because a couple other people I've met had a similar reaction. Um, so on the one hand, it's totally this, uh, it's something you haven't seen in a while. And that's Tarantino-esque, which obviously was a big deal in the, especially post Pulp Fiction. And, and when you look back, not a lot of it's good. You know, uh, a lot of just people copying the idea of people holding guns at each other or clever dialogue or games the things that came naturally to tarantino's films that were then just kind of poorly you know killing's always a fun one but there's a lot of movies in that in that period that especially coming out of the kind of the film school culture so 
I, then, then it kind of that that pattern seemed to die off for a long time. And this film has some elements of that for sure, but it f- somehow feels completely fresh again in in the way that they've gone about it and the comedic uh, set pieces. Uh, the the main reason it's easy to compare to to that is really because of the structure of Pulp Fiction, and this has a a similar structure of the way time. It's three stories uh, that all intermingling segments that are all connected through very different characters but they all have one connection to a character called teddy who's a local kind of mass you know mob criminal uh white slaver type guy he's he's a bad dude he kind of looks like um michael shannon on crack he's he he's he's an interesting fun character uh and all these other characters who are kind of connected to this guy and just the way they treat time it's in a seedy neighborhood of la and the characters are there's a there's an addict uh an ex-con uh, and a luchador and the luchador they all kind of come together uh as they get pulled into this organ harvesting caper and it, it, the luchador is hilarious i mean never takes i don't think he takes off the mask i can't remember uh and uh he's, he's called el monstro and if he gets really angry he he will have a blackout and not know what and he's like his power is unlimited and he'll never know what he's done and it has one of the opening scenes at a quinceanera where he's trying to collect money from a guy and it's just an incredible opening so it feels it has some of that magic that was uh you know in tarantino's uh you know when it was especially like that feeling of pulp fiction that I really haven't seen somebody pull something like that off. And this is, I don't want to overhype it because it's a different, it's a smaller film for sure. Um, it's made by a group of ex AFI grads who kind of bandied together to make their first feature, uh, directed by a guy called Ryan Prowse. And it's just wildly entertaining. Um, but there's, you know, one of the most memorable parts is the ex con is this white guy, but you know, his best friend from school is a black guy who picks him up. And then looks at him, and he's got us—he's got basically the remnants of a swastika tattoo on his entire face. And the sad part is, he really doesn't identify with the swastika. It's—it's it's the opposite of what he believes in. But he, you know, in jail, this happened to him, and so he's trying to explain it to his friend. And it's really probably one of the funniest sequences I've seen all year because <laughs> it's because it's a absurd but it's like it'd be like if Eminem woke up and somebody had tattooed that on his face where he's really isn't at all a supremacist and has to deal with it and it felt very timely and just funny and it just yeah it's, it's really this is a this is a real little gem of this year that I think will probably start making a lot more lists you know especially of you know the way we kind of look for movies that are uh you know gonna have legs I think this film could uh, get seen by a, a very like, and it gets really dark. I mean, it, it starts off with uh, it's also based around a motel, and we slowly find out that there's you know uh, or, or organ harvesting happening, and it's just I don't really want to tell you too much because it's also fairly complex the way it shows time. But all you have to know is it's kind of absurdist, fun, and really dark crime caper uh, that I think. I don't know. It feels really progressive in a lot of ways, and the friendships and the relationships feel uh, feel very modern. And uh, I think I think it's a bit of a gem. Nice. But I, I truly no believe life. you will love this film. Like of all the movies no, I'm I, talking I, about, I was sifting through Hulu the other day. It actually just popped up on Hulu now. Okay. So if you have Hulu, you can watch it. And I saw it come up, and I was like, "You're not the first person to recommend it to me," um, or maybe you were, but I've since also heard other people recommend it to me. Um, so I've had two or three people say they think I'd like it. And I, it seems like something that'd be up my alley. So, you know, put it on the we watch list on Hulu, and I'm definitely going to check it out. Yeah, no, I, sure. I'd love to watch that one with you. I, I'm due for a rewatch because I only saw it the one time, and, and, and it played great in a theater. It sounds like a blast. Yeah, it's really fun. Uh, and funny that we get, to, you know, another Tarantino-esque movie in uh, 
bad times at the El Royale uh, also this year. Just weird that those would that would come back in vogue again, sort of. Yeah, um, I'm down. I've, we discussed this off air that I'm looking forward to seeing that one. I, that one I wanted to cram it in before this, but then I also just want to watch it on my own. I don't want to feel rushed. I want to take it. Yeah, in. don't rush it. It's not necessarily a list maker, but it's it's interesting, and it's Drew Goddard who did uh, Cabin in the Woods. Uh, and it's a great cast. You know, there's a lot going on in it. It's definitely worth seeing. Um, but again, two hours and 20 minutes. Yeah, it's long. It's, it's just strange for a noir, a noir type. Film. It's, I, I think, yeah, I don't know. 88 minutes, baby, every movie. Yeah, that's how <laughs> you should do it. 88. Um, okay, so next up on my list is a documentary. The only documentary I ended up putting on the list here. And it is called Film Worker. Oh, I'm dying to see this movie. He came in to my office and he said, Well, I just had a thought. You're not going to go and work for Warner Brothers, are you? I was wearing a marine jacket. My hair hadn't looked as if it had been combed in a week. I just said, Stanley, do I look corporate? He kind of smirked and then laughed and then he kind of walked out and then there was never any discussion about me leaving or him getting rid of me again. When somebody would say to Stanley, and they would, I'd give my right arm to work for you, he would kind of smile because I actually think, you know, he thought, well, why are you lowballing me? What, just the right arm? How about the left one and the legs and the body and the heart and everything? If you said to him, I commit myself, he just better make sure you mean it. Otherwise, why would you bother? Because you'll betray yourself anyway in the end if you're not going to give everything you've got to what it is you're doing, because he did. He gave everything he got to what he was doing, and that's the most important thing. And that's what I saw, that's what I understood, and that's what I reacted to. I was I was thinking you would have seen it and already put it on You know, I didn't know what, why I didn't actually put it back on my... I think I put it, edited it to Netflix last night. Um, I think Liam Vitale is going to be at a bunch of screenings this in January of Kubrick movies. He's going to be there to open and they're playing that. I think, in fact, that might be all Kubrick movies. He's going to be present to have discussions. For, and I'm like, oh, that sounds interesting. So, yeah, I'm dying to see this one. I don't know why I haven't yet. I'm pretty sure you'll dig it. I mean, it's not necessarily life-changing. Yeah, it is on Netflix for people that want to check it out. Um, it's about this guy, Leon Vitale, who basically gave up his career as an actor, which was just getting started. He was cast in Barry Lyndon and ended up becoming kind of Stanley Kubrick's personal assistant, but way, way more than that. Um, just this guy that became his go-to for everything and the final filter for anything Kubrick that was getting out in the world, including, you know, checking the transfers on, you know, VHS tapes and, uh, dealing with prints. I found this clip of him talking about all the stuff that he did for Kubrick and it's mind boggling just how much, mm stuff he did on a daily basis for the guy. The assumption that people think, oh, somebody's an assistant for someone, you're doing layouts, mm-hmm. you're, you know, you're working with labs, you're working with restoration, you're mm-hmm. uh, casting people, you're working with the actors. 
and sometimes I'm happy. Was that the title you were happy with, or was that you never Didn't make any difference. It? You know something, when I traveled abroad, and I used to have to fill in these visas, they used to say occupation, I always used to write film worker. I mean, I'm a film worker. I'm a worker. That's what I do. So assistant to me is nothing other than I am assisting somebody to fulfill what it is they want to get up on a screen. I was dialogue coaching and casting. I was also in charge of shipping, television, sales. It was all about licensing, doing layout, video transfer, DVD, laser disc, inventory, timing sheet, checking of all these prints, the trailer, translations, and all the lab work, color timing. There wasn't a print or a telecine. I hadn't sat with Stanley, made the changes, and then talked to the lab about it afterward for all his movies. At first you're like, oh, my God, Stanley Kubrick. And then you're like, fucking hell, man. Because you're pushed to a point where you're like, I have no more. Literally a daily basis. Like for, you know, however many years uh, from, I want to say the sh about The Shining on. Well, I mean, after Barry Lyndon is when they started to get together. And then it's like 30 some years of them just constantly working together and it's so it's fascinating to hear him talk about stanley to see the physical and emotional toll that this has taken on him you know i mean i admire the hell out of the guy but i don't know that i could do what he's done i just don't and as much as i love kubrick i just don't know that i'm capable of what he uh has because it makes me anxious to wa to watch all the stuff he has to deal with so i've just no oh, he's got to be one of the most demanding bosses ever imaginable you know he's such right? a you know he's just such a meticulous human and demanding too from what i hear yeah so yeah i'm, I'm yeah so no it's seeing it. it's fascinating and and so it does they don't lean too hard into the you know the darker side of him but you definitely get enough of it that i felt like it it helped the movie not just seem like a big love fest for kubrick which you know it certainly is that and that's understandable um, but it is about this guy and it's about a little bit about his family and how they were, you know, they knew who Stanley is and they were affected by it. And, but overall, just a really fascinating dude. And he's got great stories about Stanley and, you know, great stories. Like it's one of those things where you start to see the pictures that they're showing on sets and you're like, Oh, I've seen that picture before. Uh, because it's like some famous picture of Kubrick and there he is like in the background and suddenly like every picture you're like oh my god he's there he is there he, you know he's everywhere that Kubrick is you know he's he was always you know on set with him and so it was weird to suddenly see this guy and oh, just ever present in Kubrick's um, legacy in that way and it's really touching just how much he still you know, signs off like he signed off on and helped with the new 2001 4K that just came out, which looks gorgeous, by the way. Um, so, I mean, like he has been doing that stuff for years and he still does. So really interesting, dude, really complex and I don't know, thought provoking life relationship between the two of these guys. So um, definitely worth a look on Netflix film worker. Yeah, it actually might be the next thing I watch. Um, but funny that you for number six had a, a documentary about uh, filmmaking because my number six is a documentary about filmmaking. So who, nice. who would have known? Uh, mine is Hal directed by Amy Scott. It is the Hal Ashby documentary, which I just uh, just finally came to. I'd been waiting for a couple months because I, I was bummed I missed it in theaters. Had a very brief run and it has just come to Amazon. Hal Ashby was obsessed with film. 
he'd smoke some pot and he would work all night. It's, it's still a little astonishing to me why he hasn't had his due. Well, that's all we have as filmmakers are our instincts. We have nothing else. In other words, what I feel about something, it's only the only thing I know. The film will tell you what to do. If you think about any of Hal Ashby's films, you're going to find discussion of class, you're going to find discussion of race. He was so sensitive of what's right and what's wrong. He fought for us. But if you fight nose to nose with the head of a studio, you're going to lose. This will most certainly not be a memo of any sort. It will be closer to the ramblings of a very, very angry young punk. A lot of his wit, I think, came from pain the way I think maybe humor does come from facing adversity. Um, I, 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 you know, this, this film, it, it's not, it's easy to get me on this topic because Hal Ashby is just one of those, you know, kind of feels like one of those geniuses who had just, just uh, one of those string of like six movies. That's just perfection. And, and was known as this legendary uh, editor and just, you know, the, the stories about him and easy rider raging bull are so, so interesting because the way people viewed him almost like this mystical figure. Uh, but it also is just a total cautionary tale about art versus commerce. What happens to him um, in this film? So it's really well made. I, I like the style of it a lot. The thing that the best thing about it is it actually has, has his own voice featuring throughout because he had made all these audio recordings oh. and so so some are about filmmaking where he's talking to people but some are um also these letter my favorite thing in this movie and 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 this film actually really like was the first film to really you know tear me up in a long time and really kind of destroy me and, and, and it's not trying very hard it's just because he's such a kind of beautiful figure in terms of his beliefs i think especially in the era we're in right now where everything is just so strained here's a guy who was making films uh, because he wanted to, you know, help and change things, and really believed in equality and these kind of, um, you know, the civil rights. And um, he has a very, very close friendship that I found incredibly moving with Norman Jewison. And a lot Norman Jewison's in the film quite a lot uh, because obviously he hired him initially as an editor. They'd kind of met in a met in a cutting room very early. He hired him as an editor, and as their friendship blossomed, he's the one who eventually he was Norman Jewison was meant to direct the landlord and had prepped the movie and cast the. Movie movie and then was like you know what you know this is you want to direct this is your shot and gave him the chance to make this movie out of their friendship and i find that to be it's just they basically then spent the next you know 40 years or whatever writing letters to each other so even though they'd hang out a lot of the correspondence in the filmmaking is the hearing the letters back and forth um and it's it's just great because you totally get the insight into who he was and how he felt how both of them felt norman jewison was very anti-authoritarian as well and very anti uh the man and the studio system he really hated it and said you have to build a fortress and not let them in they'll ruin your movie every time um there's some great stories about how movies were saved especially the editor of the last detail how he kept the studio out as hilarious stories there um nice it, it's really brilliant you're gonna love it it's it's definitely no, i can't wait you know, the kind of people who tend to listen to our show tend to already be hal ashby fans a lot of them if not you have a beautiful world of cinema awaiting you but there's some great people in this but the jewish and stuff really touched me because you could tell just you know how much they respected each other i guess um the work Hal Ashby did as an editor and uh, um, what's the uh, the Rod Steiger, um, Sidney Poitier uh, in, the heat, in the, heat, the heat of the Night, which we were just talking about on our Blu-ray episode. Uh, 
yeah the editing work done on that he jewison really talks about how genius some of that work was that he did and how he would just kind of get high and then for 24 hours would lock himself in an editing lab you know and just do this amazing work but he you know he had five mar- marriages five divorces um was you know very temperamental in a lot of ways and and led to a lot of it led to his own downfall so he's a complicated figure it's it's um, not a total fluff piece by any means but it also just kind of fills you with that love of like all good documentaries about filmmakers where you just want to watch all their movies again um nice and so that's my official pick but i'm going to do a major plug for another one i love this year not quite on my top 10 but that's king cohen which is a very different kind of portrait it's much more about the it's about larry cohen so it's much more about the wild filmmaking without permits you know world of and of larry cohen and and i love that film as well for very different reasons and it's uh very playful and some hilarious stories in there for people fans of exploitation so that's that's two i would highly recommend that uh hal is a must excellent yep i'm gonna see i haven't seen king cohen yet either and i'm dying to i know i'm gonna love that as well and it ends in a certain jump cut cafe i know very touching very cool you've been immortalized um outside of your uh meet the fuckers uh yeah that's way more important uh, (laughs) um (laughs) but so this one this next one for me this is a funny thing we've talked about letterbox on the show before um sometimes what i like to do is there's certain people that i follow on letterbox uh that like to swap out their favorite films basically every month and i've taken to doing that when i think of it uh it's fun to do just change things up I didn't know you could uh, do that. I thought it, you. I thought you had to be true to your top top four. Now that I know, I'm going to do it. Oh, dude, I do it all the time. I change. You know, for uh, November, I had all noirs. You know, uh, that kind of thing. It's fun right, to do. Right. Um, so Matt Singer, uh-huh. film critic Matt Singer, uh, who I've never met in person, but I followed online for years, and uh, I follow him on Letterboxd. Um, he at one point had this movie in his top four. He has a really interesting technique where he'll just take an old movie. Uh, like some medium, you know, 80s movies maybe, and then a brand new movie that he'll throw in, which I think is always a nice touch, you know, that it's like a new movie this year that he obviously really liked. And so this was in there, and I'm like, what is that movie? And I'm sure a lot of people have heard of it, but for whatever reason, at the time I first saw it on his list, I hadn't heard of it at all, and I didn't even know it had come out. And it's, uh, it's called Private Life. I just don't want to find myself at 50 and some block association meeting trying to prevent the opening of a new bar. Richard, we're not turning 50 on East 6th Street. I'm 47. Having a baby is an immoral act. Overpopulation, climate change, rise of neo-fascism. Did you take your Valium? Yes. Why? They're trying a by any means necessary approach. I thought they were done with all that and they were trying to adopt. They're still doing that. They're like fertility junkies. Your best chance for success is with the donor egg. He's out of his mind. There's a lot of positives. Oh, it's easy for you to say. You'll have your genetic contribution. And me, I'm just left out. Don't even... And it is from director Tamara Jenkins, who oh, did... Oh, yeah. Uh, okay, I know what you're talking about now. Yep. Yeah. She did Slums of Beverly Hills, which is great. And then she did The Savages, uh, which I've never seen. Uh, I still need to see that. But I always... Slums of Beverly Hills was a really great... Uh, I think it's her debut film. And it just had a really neat voice to it. And she's really talented. 
And so Matt had this movie Private Life on his list and I discovered, oh, it's an it's a Netflix movie. It's something that she did in collaboration specifically for Netflix. So it came out on Netflix and apparently like a lot of things that come out straight to Netflix, didn't get a huge push advertising wise, which is kind of the double edged sword of that service is that. Yes, you're reaching a ton of people, but we're not going to really advertise as much. And I get why that's, you know, expensive and there's reasons not to do it, but it's too bad when a movie like this comes out that I didn't even know I could have been watching and I, you know, it took that random me running across his account to notice that I could actually be watching the movie. So this is on Netflix right now. You can go watch it. Basically the story which is based a bit on Tamara Jenkins and her husband's struggles with fertility. Um, it's about a married couple. They are kind of tying back into the Cold War discussion. They are artists, you know, writers. Uh, I can't remember what they both do, but I, I feel like they both have more artistically inclined jobs. So they're, you know, living in a rent control apartment, but they're trying to have a kid and they're, you know, getting later into their lives and so they're having some trouble. So they're going through the whole fertility drugs and all these different things. And it's costing them a ton of money. And they, they aren't, you know, their relationship is suffering a little bit because of it. And, but they're great together. They're like a really great real couple. And then enter their niece. Uh, and they also, there's another family with a matriarch played by Molly Shannon. That's a totally different, like, you know, house in the suburbs, we have real jobs, you know, real family, kind of a not, you know, total opposites, but definitely showing some variation between the two families. Um, anyway, I don't want to give anything else away, but but the, the niece comes to stay with them and things sort of, you know, progress from there. And it's just really well observed. It's very funny in parts. It's very poignant also in parts. I just was really impressed by the writing and the acting overall. And uh, it's a little bit long. It, it hits the two hour mark. It's about two hours and three minutes. So that could be problematic for some, but I feel like the way the story is laid out and the way these characters enter the movie and play off of each other makes it not feel as long as that. Hmm. So anyway, I really enjoyed it. Uh, I was surprised how much, and there are definitely some moments in it that reminded me a lot more of my marriage than, you know, like I said, something like Cold War. So I think that I'm also a sucker for that kind of thing. You know, marriages that are two people sticking it out, you know, and trying to get through a really tough patch and something involving children too. So that's also something that I can relate to. But anyway, um, really solid, definitely worth your time, private life. And that's Paul Giamatti, right? Paul Giamatti and Catherine Hahn play the main couple. I can't believe I didn't bring that up. But yeah, they are wonderful. They are wonderful together. Yeah, I hadn't really heard about it either until I saw a, a, a photo of the two of them. And then as soon as I heard it was a Giamatti fertility, very personal story, maybe I'd heard an interview with the director and I was like, oh, okay, that sounds really interesting. So yeah, I got to track that one down myself. Yeah, it's well done. Netflix. Okay. Um, speaking of well-written and well-acted, uh, my number five is one of the more awards-y type movies that uh, will be getting some love. Probably not as much love as it deserves, but the actress certainly would, and that is Paul Schrader's First Reformed. You think that what we did together was a sin? I've seen enough real sin to know the difference. You didn't tell the police, right? Take a look at your own life before you criticize others. These are frightening times. We have to be patient. Well, somebody has to do something. Are you one? Are you one? 
Pretty, pretty grim, uh, serious film. I, I, I love that when Schrader talks about it, he talks about it like it's the movie he always tried not to make. His entire career was him resisting making because he, you know, was a critic initially, and he wrote his uh, book on the transcendental style in film. So he was talking about Dreyer and Ozu and uh, uh, Bresson. And, you know, people would always assume he was going to make that movie. And then he did, never made a movie uh, quite in that mold at the time. So this is him going all in, especially on Dreyer, uh, Carl Dreyer. Um, and, and, of course, Diary of a Country Priest, because this is literally Ethan Hawke uh, playing <laughs> so against type. Like when you when you I think not enough people are talking about how great a performance I, everyone watches and goes, he's really good in it. But I think they should really be thinking about compared to the before sunrise movies, like think about them in those terms, how radically different and buttoned up and like internal uh, this character is. Uh, he's a small town uh, minister of a church that's almost a joke church. It's like a, it's like one of those perfect little churches, but it's also more of a place you would stop to get a um, a mug with the church on it. And so he's got a very small congregation, and he's got something some very dark uh, things have happened in his past uh, to do with his own family that kind of led him to becoming a minister. Uh, and the, there's a whole lot of tra- Travis Bickle in him not necessarily the violence it's all kind of internal uh and and a lot of the country priest from bresson's movie uh kind of merged together he it's very similar to um schrader talks about how he's kind of ridden this character multiple times it's it's light sleeper it's travis bickle um it's uh american gigolo they have there's a similarity to this character kind of is keeping uh, a diary almost uh about what they're going through um but this one he then basically comes into the life of a young parishioner, Amanda Seafried, who's worried about her husband and his ment- she's pregnant and his mental state seems a little fractured. He's really worried about the world and pollution and ecology. And then, you know, uh, the character of Ethan Hawke's character starts getting very involved uh, in some of these ideas. And uh, it's it's just... I don't want to give much away because, you know, a, lot of, a lot's been said about the ending, which is, I think, very similar to the ending of Taxi Driver and its openness to be, you could read it in many different ways. Uh, but I love it, and I thought it was brilliant. And, and you know, it's a hard film to love as a movie because it is so grim and precise in a lot of ways. But the performance is incredible, and I think there couldn't be a more apt movie for these days under Trump, some of the, you know, climate deniers, all this kind of stuff's happening, and this film really seems to want to kind of attack it in its quiet way uh i was really impressed um it's not necessarily a big rewatch movie for me but i really respect what it was going for and i and i you know i'd be happy if ethan hulk won the oscar for it uh that's how good he is in this film um and cedric the entertainer's in it playing a totally different yeah totally different role um really good yeah but i, I think it's really cool that schrader had this this kind of a hit in a sense you know it's a24 it's an indie hit um at this point of his career where he was taking a lot of experimental risks the last couple of movies especially that man bites uh, the dog and whatever the last movie he made with uh willem dafoe and nick cage where it's doggy like dog doggy dog and every shot of it is like a crazy wild camera it's like watching natural killers and fast forward almost um this is so restrained and and it's just i think he really kind of 
uh, kind of nailed it, made a perfect little um, story here. Uh, so if you haven't seen it yet, I know a lot of people will have seen this one. If you haven't, definitely uh, put it on your list. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting entry from him and one that I flirted with the idea of putting on my list, but I was hoping you would. Uh, and also, it's like you say, it's not really a rewatcher per se, um, but it is very well put together and well acted. And I think goes interestingly with Schrader's movie Affliction as much as they're not both the same, uh, there's just a similar something about them. I mean, they're both tough watches in some ways. Affliction even more so. Uh, and that's just a movie I feel like people have forgotten about. And that was a big movie to me when it came out. It was also not a great rewatcher, but but really powerful. And, and Coburn in that film. Whew. Oh my God. So good. Yeah. Um, and Nolte's amazing. Um, anyway, yeah, I, I watching that, I was like, Oh yeah, this reminds me of how I felt about affliction. Just as a really well-made movie. And one where you're like, yeah, he's still got it. He's yeah. still got some cool, interesting ideas. And, and that's exciting to me because I, I hadn't given up on him, but I was, I was getting concerned, I think. Yeah, Scorsese is like a pure cinema director, not not an art podcast, but like the idea he's just motion and movement and and what movies can do. And Schrader's like w- much more of the writer and much more of the focus on ideas and character uh, versus what the camera can do. I don't think that interests him particularly, you know. And it's yeah, it's yeah. just a very different vision, you know. Totally, but worthwhile, absolutely. First Reformed, good stuff. Um, well, we are definitely in sync tonight because I'm gonna go. I'll see your Ethan Hawke movie and raise you another. And uh, that would be my next pick, and that is Juliet Naked. Tucker Crow, one of the most unsung figures of alternative rock. Hasn't been seen in 20 years. That's him. Wow, he's so gorgeous. Thank you. I think I've had enough Tucker bloody Crow to last 20 lifetimes. Tucker has a new album, and I don't want to spend my time with someone who doesn't get it. Oh, somebody new. Juliet Naked is a naked attempt to squeeze a few more quid out of a long dead career. You wrote this. It was the strangest thing. I met someone on the internet. You're finally entering the modern age. You read that review I posted. You nailed it. I couldn't have explained it better myself. Tucker Crow. Tucker Crow, as in Duncan's idol, Tucker yes. Crow. Yeah, it's really me. What's your story? I'm dying to see this one. Actually, you told me about this a couple about a month ago. I hope you dig it. Um, so this is one that is based on a book by Nick Hornby. I'm a big fan of his stuff. Uh, I feel like if he and I ever met, we would be very similar people somehow. <laughs> yeah. But but he's more music focused than he is movie focused, so maybe not. Like but High, regardless, High Fidelity being the classic book. That book is yeah. brilliant. I love that book. Yeah, definitely a great book. Um, Definitely read the book if you haven't, because it's a really interesting read versus the adaptation to Chicago. Yeah, it's good stuff. But I like him a lot. I think About a Boy is really interesting. You know, he's just got something about his writing that uh, I'm drawn to. He definitely has an affinity for, like, sort of male characters that haven't quite grown up Mm -hmm. and, you know, tend to be obsessive, nerdy types. And, yeah, I'm sort of guilty as charged on both counts. And so this one deals with uh, Chris O'Dowd plays a character who's living with his girlfriend played by Rose Byrne and she works at like a historical center. It's kind of like the church in First Reformed. It's something else. It's some other kind of historical thing. 
Uh, it's like a nonprofit. And he is like a low level college professor, but he's obsessed with this uh, singer songwriter named Tucker Crow. And that is played by Ethan Hawke. And it's this guy who, in an interview I heard with Ethan Hawke today, he said if it, it was like if J.D. Salinger had been a singer songwriter and then dropped out, or if, you know, Kurt Cobain hadn't died, but instead it just disappeared. And I don't know if I that's what I took away from the movie in terms of who this character is. But basically he's a guy uh, who made this, you know, great album or he made a, like one good album. And then there's another album that was supposed to exist kind of like Brian Wilson's smile or something uh, for music nerds. And it, it suddenly surfaces online. And so Chris O'Dowd's character runs like a, um, I guess it's like a, chat room no it's it's like a forum for tucker crow fans like a web page and the forum and everything and so there's a bunch of nerdy dudes obsessing about this guy who's disappeared and nobody knows where he is but what ends up happening without giving too much away is tucker crow is still alive he's you know living in the states and he sort of ends up getting intertwined with these other characters and you get a sense of where he's been and why he's been there and what his viewpoint on life is now and how he feels about the art and the music and the things he did before. So it's really fascinating, you know, just this, this sort of nerd's eye view of a, of a guy and the guy himself, you know, much like I would obsess over a director and, you know, meet him and then find out, you know, like, oh, there's been a bunch of divorce. There's been all these other things. He's just a regular person in that sense. Um, So, I don't know. But there's something about the Chris O'Dowd character that is so obsessive and nerdy that I was really kind of embarrassed that (laughs) when my wife saw the movie that she would be like, you know... She'd find you out. (laughs) Yeah, I was like, I think that character might remind me of... might remind you of me... And I'm sorry. Hmm. Um, so there's definitely parts of him, that obsessive type, that he shows himself to not be the best partner in some circles, in some ways. And it was one of those things where I was like, oh, yeah, I guess I can do that sort of thing. So so there's, again, uh, something I related to on the level of the characters in this movie. And uh, Rose Byrne is just delightful. So if you don't like Rose Byrne, what the hell's the matter with you? Yeah, she's great. Yeah. So between O'Dowd, Rose Byrne, and Ethan Hawke, uh, it's a really great trio, and uh, it's a really interesting, you know, like I said, story of an artist and you know actual life lived and lessons learned and things like that. So uh, good stuff. Juliet Naked. Well, we are still in simpatico because uh, my number four is also uh, about an artist but it's not nearly as subtle a movie. Uh, this movie is utterly bonkers in the in its uh, filmmaking style, style to burn, and that is Let the Corpses Tan. Maintenant, il faut les tuer tous. Uh, right. Directed by Helene Catet and Bruno Forzani, who are a married Belgium couple. They've made a couple movies. Amer, uh, which was, you know, pretty striking homage to Giallo, um, as was Strange Colors of Your Body's Tears. 
Um, and I like, I think Amer is like really interesting and I like strange colors, but neither of them, uh, completely stand up on their own as a, as a full movie to me. They're more like interesting art pieces. Um, and this is the first one that really works to me as a, as a full movie and it's exciting and still totally crazy. It does everything their other movies are doing. Um, this is uh, set, I'm not sure what the island, it almost looks like the Greek Isles or something, but it's set uh, on a remote island where basically a bunch of, uh, and this old, not a castle, but like a kind of a relic falling apart uh, uh, house is on the top of a hill. And there, we're in this kind of reclusive, uh, very experimental, very sexual artist lives. And uh, she has uh, let a bunch of criminals ha- uh, stay there. Uh, and they are in the process of a, ma- a major uh, gold bouillon uh, heist, 250 kilograms of gold bouillons. Uh, their mastermind is a guy called Rhino, and they're all kind of wearing leather and uh, kind of very Euro uh, group of criminals, uh, badasses. Uh, there's also a um bohemian writer novelist who is also living on the property and the artist has been amused to him the artist has also been amused at some point to the uh one of the lead criminals so she has this really interesting backstory um that that you see in a series of flashbacks as the story goes uh and then basically you, you get to see the heist you know that they're hiding out there and then basically two cops in the village uh get a tip off uh, that they that they might be up there and they head up there and then from then on the basic structure of this movie is very much like free fire but this is way more stylish where free fire is much more about the characters and for me even though i really like the characters loses a bit of steam this is like all energy non-stop style it's not really about the characters at all um it's it's much more it's almost a disguise it's disguised as a spaghetti western but what it really is is a it's a you know a sexual psychosexual you know frenzied view into each character's desires and memories and then crazy action sequences but what makes the film really memorable is that it basically is the the classic line know the rules and then break them because this film almost breaks constantly and it's probably exhausting to some people i'd say uh every rule of cinema it it really favors extreme close-ups over uh, over any establishing shots so i know uh, my friend rebecca mckendry had seen it and she i think she liked it a lot but she was like it's so dislocating because you never know where you are but it just makes for this really disorienting trip of a movie um and but what was really fun at the when you get to the end, and I, I really you know think this is going to blow some people away in terms of style if if they're into this kind of thing. Um, but the artist in it, who's who's very sexual, and I just instantly recognized her, but could not place it. What what she's from? She's because no one else is uh, really famous in this movie. And got to the end of the movie, and then I looked up her name, and I was like, oh my god, I couldn't believe I didn't place it. It's Alina Lowenson, who's Naja from Naja. She's in The Amateur by Hal Hartley. She's in Basquiat. She was in all these indie films during that period. Oh, but wow. now she's probably aged into being, you know, 45 or so and is still utterly beautiful. But now she's more kind of hauntingly beautiful. She has just this – she and she's kind of a menacing character in her own way because she kind of, like, cackles at people and is very free love and doesn't give a shit that they're criminals and kind of doesn't give a shit about cops. So she's hard to peg. And – um yeah, she's really fantastic, and it. it's like it's really one of the best returns I've, to screen. I've, I know she probably hasn't gone anywhere, probably in French cinema, but for me, it was kind of shocking to see this face that I hadn't seen in cinema for a long time, and uh, totally worth it. I, I think this is a really cool movie, um, and just one that it took me a long time to finally get to see it, uh, and I, I kind of loved it. 
That's awesome, man. I told you I just got this in the mail, so um, and the, I would I have to admit the title kind of confused me. So <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it's alludes to, to be honest. It's I think except that I thought they're it was on a an zombie island. movie. Yeah, no, it's I definitely legit yeah, thought it was a zombie no, it's definitely movie. more like it's got more Leone than it's got any horror. It's um. I guess maybe because there are a bunch of people out in the sun, you know, maybe that's what it, yeah. I, it, I know it's based on a very popular uh, noir novel from whatever country, the country of origin that they adapted. So, you know, there's obviously maybe more story in it if you're looking for the book, but this is much more about style, but it's just so fun to see movies that can do anything. Like there's nothing stylistically they don't try in this movie. And it's just, I know it's entertaining to see someone try attack that. Yeah. I'm all in, man. I'm all in. Um, okay. Well, this was my number one movie for a little while this year because I so enjoyed it. It uh, is one I'm pretty sure you're a fan of as well. What number are we at? Three for you? Number three. Okay. I have a feeling uh, it's going to be the same. I'm just... I'm just. Oh, that's awesome. Wow. Um, we're really... We'll see. We'll see. We might not be, but I have a feeling. Maybe not. Um, all right. So I'm talking about Upgrade. My number three is Upgrade. All right. So we could just... We just timed that beautifully. Let's go to town. Are you one of them? Yeah. Stan, you can take over. Thank you. I now have full control. Hi. You upgraded. Now you're stronger. Faster. Whoa, 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 whoa. Better than everyone else. That's so cool. Yeah, so Lee Winnell, uh writing and directing. And man, oh man, was I impressed. Well, let's just, and I let's just... put a pin for one second. Lee Winnell directing, and I've met him multiple times, obviously through doing Shockwaves at Blumhouse, one of the funniest and nicest guys I've met in this town. I did not know he could do this because his Insidious movie, I think it was three, was okay. And, and But as on a directing level, I didn't see anything about it that would make me go, oh, this guy's... Uh, should direct because a lot of times you know people have been writing he's he's been the co-writer of james wan a major director this movie is so well directed it's incredible it's a tonal tonal masterpiece like between comedy and action it's really like i call it the moon of this year like it's that mood that sci-fi kind of comic oh yeah you know gem that just you're like holy shit this is a perfect little movie yeah and especially for a low budget movie yeah, it's and it's and it's perfectly RoboCop mixed with 2001. Basically, that's all you need. <laughs> you know, it's Hal and RoboCop together. You know. Yeah, yeah. No, it's definitely. You know, I mean, I don't. I don't know how much do you want to give away about the plot. Well, I think the trailer. If you haven't seen, I mean, I think you can give away at least enough that it's a guy who's in a terrible accident and then kind of like wrote, that's why I kept alluding it. I don't know if you heard the Shockwaves one top ten, but. I purposely did not put this in my Shockwaves top 10 only because I knew a lot of people would put it in for horror. And I kept saying, but this is Robocop would never appear in somebody's horror list ever. And this is Robocop. It's not, you know, it's, it's perfect sci-fi in that way, sci-fi action. So, you know, I don't care where people classify movies ultimately, but to me, yeah, it's, it's, it's a funny thing that, but uh, it's, so it's a guy who is in a terrible accident and saying terrible happens to his, uh, to his partner and he his body gets built up with a new technology called stem and i think that's all you need to know that the yeah. the stem gives them special powers but man there were some moments in there and twists that i really didn't expect that just were perfect in the way they were kind of timed out in the movie and just funny and, and, and i'll be honest i was never a big fan of logan marshall green in some of the earlier films but i really liked him in the inv- 
Invitation by Karen Kusama. Mm, and after that, same. that kind of turned me around. I thought he was going to be a little bit of a generic kind of uh, performance, especially like um, Prometheus and stuff like that. And then this movie, he is absolutely excellent. And this is a movie where I'll totally have a different opinion of the guy's kind of comic timing especially um so playful and and it's a revenge movie which you know i love revenge movies yeah same here yeah he is really something else it's one of those movies you're like wow this is an actor who was made to play this part like he just nails it yeah and yeah it's it's so impressive in terms of uh you know what is kind of a simple premise and one that we've seen sort of before but I, I, it felt original to me just in terms of his approach and the the details, the the ins and outs of this world, this future world and where things are at and how it feels frighteningly possible in a lot of ways. And that's, I think, some of my favorite sci-fi. And that's where I feel like you can start to cross it over with horror is because it does horrify. It does scare you you know like home invasion scares you like how close we are to this yeah and, and, and it's body could... horror for sure it is body horror, yes. literally but so is yeah. robocop <laughs> you know. i agree i agree no the, the robocop argu- argument is totally fair and um i i totally get it but and you know horror fans will enjoy this but i feel like there some non-horror fans could get into this too there's just a great action to it i mean i i haven't seen, this is a really pretentious thing but i haven't seen that much black mirror as much as i know i will like it and obviously this has a kinship with what I have seen of that yeah. in terms of the, you know, technology thematics and the sort of dark, twisted world. And But one big difference it, is, the, is how funny this is. Uh, yes. I, I thought this is actually, this will sound really weird, but I think this is, to me, was the funniest movie of the year. And, and, <laughs> and, and I just think that's my sense of humor, the moments where it lands with a humorous punch. It was like hilarious because of it was physical comedy, and that's something you don't get to see much anymore. And like Buster Keaton is my favorite comedian, and this is all physical comedy. When this movie takes it's the true. turn and his and he's not so much in control, it's just to me, you know, it's not a, it's not straight comedy by any means. But man, I, I I laughed my ass off in those moments, and and I I had kind of lower expectations. I thought I I don't I don't think I saw it as early as most people. I didn't see it in theaters, and I had a lot of friends who were raving about it, and I still kind of. Was I was like, eh, I don't know what it was that's keeping away. And then I just one night watched and was like, oh man, you know, Lee Winnell yeah. just totally, totally crushed it. And I know he went to Australia to make it and, you know, on home turf and probably, you know, for a low budget, probably had to pull all those favors and resources to make that movie. But it punches so above its weight, uh, you know, it's, yeah. Um, and, and makes you want to know what he will do next, which is, you know, absolutely, which is what yeah, you want. No, it is, it is a true gem. And like I said, was my favorite of the year. There wasn't anything topping it for a while. Uh, it is that kind of movie and that assured and just a classic. So impressed. And I, my family and I were on vacation in San Francisco for the short, you know, few weeks it was out. And so my son and I at one point just decided to go out to a movie and it was later in one evening we were staying at a hotel, which I don't usually do when we're on vacation. You don't usually go to a movie. But I was like, let's go to the movie. And so we ended up seeing this together, and it was perfect. It was so neat to see it with him because it's such a badass movie, and, and he's at the right age where he appreciated its badassness. So that was an extra added layer of warmth on top of this one for me. But it's just a great movie. I've seen it uh, 
this is another one I've seen a few times. Not as much as I've seen Tag. Yeah, no, no, it is a rewatch <laughs> movie for times. sure. Like, and and I'm it's not great. as big a rewatcher as you. I'm definitely someone who rewatches, you know, not very regularly most movies. This is definitely one I, I look forward to seeing again. And if you're at home and you're taking notes and you're still on the fence, keep in mind this is the only film so far where we have. Uh, both put on our list so if that's not, if these are pretty different lists so keep that in mind yeah. that that could be a reason that's worth checking out i love that we both had it at number three yeah that's hilarious nice uh okay well, then that means um, number two number two well this is going into very me territory and um you know i'm i'm sure there were some that thought this movie was just more of the same but i guess more of the same for me is just exactly what i want and i don't think it's exactly more of the same um I'm talking about Isle of Dogs uh-huh. from Wes Anderson. I don't think I can stomach any more of this garbage. Exactly. Same here. Words out of my mouth. I used to sleep on a lamb's wool beanbag next to an electric space heater. That's my territory. I'm an indoor dog. I starred in 22 consecutive doggy chop commercials. Look at me now. I couldn't land an audition. I was the lead mascot for an undefeated high school baseball team. <coughs> I lost all my spirit. I'm depressing. I only ask for what I've always had, a balanced diet, regular grooming, and a, a general physical once a year. I think I might give up. But right now? Right now. There's no future on Trash Island. You heard the rumor, right, about Buster? Not sure. Can you remind Who's Buster? Uh, my brother from another litter. What happened to him? Suicided. Hanged himself by his own leash. Hmm. Oh, boy. I want my master. Uh, You make me sick. I've seen cats with more balls than you dogs. Stop licking your wounds! You hungry? Kill something and eat it. You sick? Take a long nap. You cold? Dig a hole in the ground, crawl into it, and bury yourself. But nobody's giving up around here, and don't you forget it, ever. Yeah, you know, it's funny. All these movies that are the most special to me, well, not the most, but that some of them get extra points because of the circumstances under which I saw them. This one I took Raven to see opening weekend, and she loved it. And I wouldn't necessarily recommend it for kids of all ages before you watch it because it is PG-13 rated. Like I said, she really liked it, and it just ended up being this movie that was just what I wanted it to be. You know, I'd seen Fantastic Mr. Fox. That's one of Raven's favorite movies, and I really like it a lot. I think Wes Anderson is almost supposed to be working in this animation style. It's almost the ideal format for him in terms of the kind of control that I think he really would like to have Mm. over every frame. So I don't know. He just, he did a really good job with Mr. Fox and that one was just something that stood out to me. This is different though. This is darker. This is more adult. Uh, I was listening to an interview with Wes today and he was saying the two major influences are Kurosawa and Miyazaki. And when you look at the movie, you can kind of see that it's, it's, you know, kind of weird in parts and, you know, it has a certain drama about it in other parts that isn't totally expected from a kid's movie. So it's kind of not that. And unfortunately that means a movie like this is probably not going to do that well because it's, it's unclear from looking at it, like who it's meant for. And it's unclear in watching it kind of who it's meant for, but 
there's something about him doing what he does, you know, making up these ridiculous mythical stories about different mythical characters in the Wes Anderson verse. And this one is just about an island where these dogs have been banished. Nomadic packs of once domesticated house pets, sick and hungry, rove the garbage canyons and filthy ravines, scrounging for scraps. 100% test positive for the dog flu germ. Symptoms? Weight loss, dizziness, narcolepsy, insomnia, and extreme aggressive behavior. Three quarters display signs of early onset snout fever, high temperature, low blood pressure, acute moodiness, and spasmodic nasal expiration. The exiled dog population grows weaker, sadder, angrier. Desperate. And they're all sick, so it's kind of post-apocalyptic, and I don't know. There's just something really perfectly Wes Anderson about it, and some will just find it too twee or, I don't know, you know, to him. And or, you know, I've heard people come after it for the fact that it's, you know, it's all about Japanese culture and it's, you know, white guys, you know, (laughs) talking about it. And I guess I can see the point they're coming at it from, but uh, but ultimately I just I don't think the movie's doing anything too offensive for me anyway that you wouldn't enjoy it on just the level of being a silly farcical Wes Anderson movie, mm. you know, uh, with a little more on its mind than that, with a little more uh, gravitas in certain parts, but a really incredible cast, you know, Goldblum, Bill Murray, Brian Cranston, uh, Ed, Eddie Edward... What's his name? Uh, Norton. Norton, yes, thank you. Um, yeah, it's a good cast, you know, and uh, I, I just I love this style of animation, and I don't know. It's just a world I, I really enjoyed. Yeah, I haven't, I, believe it or not, I, I haven't seen that or the Fox, uh, Fantastic Mr. Fox. It's weird. There's something that, uh, you know, it wasn't anything repelling me because I like stop motion, but for whatever reason, I it, those are the Wes Anderson films I have yet to even jump into. So maybe I'll watch the two of them together and see what I think. I'm curious. Yeah, I'm I'm hoping that you like them. I mean, you could. Uh, I mean, they're different movies, you know, so I, I, I don't necessarily feel like if you like one, you'll like the other. Uh-huh. I like them both. Um, and Mr. Fox has grown on me more and more with each time I've watched it. And because Raven loves it, we've watched it quite a bit. We just watched it again after rewatching Isle of Dogs the other day. And, uh, it was, it was a good time. So I'm very curious what you think and not to build them up any more than necessary, but just because I want to know what you think of them when you get to them. Yeah. I haven't really heard that much about it this year besides when it first came out. So I'm glad it's making a list so people will uh, consider it. Cool. Uh, my number two uh, is the only holdover from my Shockwaves horror list uh, because it's to me much more of a cult movie and much more of a pure cinema movie than it is a horror, straight horror movie. Uh, and that is the movie Mandy, directed by Panis Cosmatis. You think you're so in love. I'll show you love. the cosmic darkness. It glowed from within. Strange and eternal. (laughs) 
are you are you a fan? I'm a fan, and that would be my number one. That's what I was expecting right here as I delivered that. So this is a good chance for us to talk about. Um, yeah, this movie is just so so freaking rad. It, 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 just before even talking about the movie, it's just been a great Nick Cage year, and this is what yeah. I've been waiting for. I've been waiting for people to use him correctly he's never gone away people think he's so that keeps telling people this but it's like no he's 100 percent cage every time you just don't know what to do with the cage you know a lot of <laughs> a lot of people put him in a cage uh or put him in a shitty uh, shitty film but uh when you know how to use this guy he is just such an incredible actor and i i mom and dad honestly came very close to being on this list for me because i think it's a really fun movie it really is I'm and it made John Waters top 10. I mean, how cool is that? Oh, that John great. Waters put put that in his top 10 this year. Um, and that's a really fun one. There's a new one, Between Worlds, that just came out a couple of days ago that I'm going to check out. That's Supernatural, apparently, that he's in. That looks interesting. Um, and then Mandy. Nice. And Mandy's just, you know, for me and you, we're both uh, big fans of Beyond the Black Rainbow and Panis' work. And he's somebody who, uh, you know, obviously there's a long period between these two movies. And this movie just has so many aesthetic elements. And the people who don't like it, it's one of those weird movies that as you watch it, you're like, I totally get the people who wouldn't like this. I, I, I can even see why you don't like it. But those same things you're not liking are exactly what I wanted someone to put in a movie. <laughs> it's like yeah. somebody knew that if we added all these weird elements, like setting it in 83, um, you know, setting it, uh, it feels like, uh, you know, these kind of heavy metal uh, fantasy paperbacks and album covers. And uh, I think Rebecca said something like it looks like a film, uh, you know, the spray painted on, on the side of a truck. You know, it has that, <laughs> that's how it feels. And it's, there's something about it that um, he just, really mixes these aesthetic elements so well but then on top of that he tapped into uh i feel like weirdly enough this film's fantasy basically a fantasy movie but it it to me it tapped more into the sexual politics of this year and all the crazy dynamics that are happening out there with me too right across the board more than any other movie with with uh andrea reisberg's you know i think incredible character of mandy uh and this kind of doomed laughter there's a scene in particular where she's laughing uh at this cult leader that just it's haunting but it also just felt so resonant to some of the suffering that you know women endure and uh yeah it just was one of those moments that really I, I i was left with for a long time um but it's also this is a movie that was demanded to be back in theaters you know that's one of the things i love most about it. it's like it was you know the company putting it out basically had planned mostly a vod kind of release of and then people who did see it in theaters kept demanding it for it to go to more theaters and more theaters and independent theaters and this is like the definition of cult like this is the people demanding the movie it, this is the closest i've felt in a long time to the classic midnight movies the razor heads the movies that were being pulled back into theaters in that way um, which is so exciting yeah i couldn't agree more it's i mean I, that's kind of what i'm aiming for with this list sometimes is the danny perry kind of movies but this one is just such a gimme and such a visionary piece of filmmaking. I mean, Panos is just something else in terms of, you know, I mean, you watch a P.T. Anderson movie and you get a sense of the influences, not all of them, because he's clearly got some deep cuts in there for sure. But you can kind of see where one thing leads to another sometimes with, with guys like that, sort of. But with Panos, it's such an incredible mix. And I don't really even understand how some of those things come together, but they come together in his brain and it comes out in this story. And it's just like, wow, I never would have put these different elements together 
and and there's no way that it would have worked if I did, but somehow he's able to do that, and I don't even, I don't know. It's really remarkable, man. Yeah, and it's I think the big difference between this and uh, and the reason why I think it's a major leap for him because Beyond the Black Rainbow already works aesthetically and is a visionary film, but it doesn't have the emotional heart. Uh, yeah, you know, you watch it and. I couldn't tell you anything about the character in that movie now, all these years later. This film is just, it has this really, it's, you know, to me, one of the more moving relationships I saw all year is played out between Nicolas Cage and, you know, his his girlfriend, his kind of nerdy, you know, fantasy loving girlfriend who, uh, with these incredibly sad eyes, you know, and there's a flashback towards the end of this movie where he remembers them first meeting and it just kills you. It's it's just so beautiful and it's so weird to make a beautiful, I mean, how often does a genre film like this make a beautiful moment like that after having like crazy bloody violence, uh, chainsaw, a chainsaw fight for Christ's sake. I mean, this film literally has at all and crazy drug use and he and he based the second half of nick cage's character on on the jason Voorhees from <laughs> friday part seven i mean this is this is the crazy event but it's also and it's also nick cage um and so you know if anyone hasn't read you know seen it it's it's uh, uh you know a, a lumberjack character who lives in a secluded cabin which has a fantasy element to it you know even where they live him and his girlfriend yeah. um and they just sit around hanging out watching weird movies and reading you know fantasy paperbacks and then uh she catches the eye of this weird kind of new age american cult who's passing her by and they you know decide to abduct her and things go very very dark from that point in the movie and there's even like a hellraiser cenobite type characters on bikes i mean it's just so wild and then and then nick cage really goes in this uh, crazy uh, revenge film throwing bill duke for christ's sake i mean oh, i love bill duke uh a, a johan johansson's final score tragically is this you know really great score beautiful too. score and then a really great turn by um uh the actor linus roach as the villain in this who's totally channeling richard lynch from god told me to <laughs> it's a total god told me to roll i love it That's hilarious, and yeah. it's and it's wild so it's it's really it's hard to put in a box um i'm looking forward to re-watching it because i've only seen it the one time in the theaters and it really just had such a great you know seeing it theatrically is obviously a pretty amazing way especially the sound um of this movie but uh you know it's it's all it's so many of the things i want to see in a movie in one movie um and i'm hoping it's gonna mean more cage in you know, a batshit movies, but also good batshit movies. I, I just saw he's yeah. going to be in the new Sion Sono film, which is going to be fascinating. And he's going to be in Richard Stanley's, uh, the guy who had the failed Island of Moreau film, his oh, crazy yeah. Lovecraft adaptation. So, wow. so that's by the same company who made Mandy. So, you know, there's, there's a good chance, you know, now if I can see him in a PTA film and a Quentin Tarantino film, I will have my, my, my life fulfilled. Cause I've always wanted to see Nick Cage work with those guys. Um, Me too. Yeah, totally, totally amazing movie. Yeah, it's it's really something else. I mean, like I said, for pure pleasure me movies, Isle of Dogs was the best one that hit me the most. But in terms of originality of vision, I just was not... It just wasn't close for me in terms of any other film this year that brought so many things together and just made this incredible pastiche that uh, and then with at the center of it, a great emotionally grounded Nick Cage performance it's just I don't know it's something else man it's really something else and it's it's two hours ish 
Uh, but it's one movie that I can forgive its length because somehow, I don't know, it works. I don't feel the length in this one. Yeah, I get it. I get it. It's the emotion. If the emotion works, you care and you can keep watching, you know? There's And there's also lots of great cameos and stuff, so I think that helps uh, move it through. But yeah, if you haven't given this one a turn yet, uh, you know, look, I totally, I have definitely seen some people who think it's i don't know if i mean it seems weird to say pretentious because i wouldn't call it that even if that's where you thought because it's too fun i mean anyone who puts in the (laughs) the cheddar goblin in the middle of a movie to me that's the opposite of pretension but uh but i can understand that somebody thinks it's all purely aesthetics but i think there's a lot more going on in this movie um me too and give it a try if you haven't. It's wildly entertaining. Uh, I only had one film, I guess, that could top it uh, for me, and that's uh, just because it, again, it's just to me is a, a perfectly me movie in a lot of ways. Uh, and that was uh, a director I already love all of her work, but my favorite movie of the year was "You Were Never Really Here" by Lynn Ramsey, uh, director of uh, Ratcatcher and Morvan Keller. I'm gonna ask you some questions. How many are there? One guy inside the front door, second guy on the top floor. After the tone, please leave a message. It's done. A man called. He wants to see you right away. State Senator Albert Vato. His teenage daughter's missing. What's the lead? He got an anonymous text with an address. I've heard of these places. They said you were brutal. I can be. I want you to hurt them. And this is just, uh, again, similar kind of feeling to Mandy in some ways for me. It's a director who had never really worked in genre. Um, and here she is making very much a taxi driver type narrative, you know, a tra- traumatized PTSD suffering vet played by Joaquin Phoenix in a really great role for him, I think. Um, and his, and he basically kind of takes kind of low paying for what he's doing. He goes in and rescues, uh, girls who have been sex trafficked. Um, and he has kind of pretty shady, you know, uh, boss and the way, the way these deals go down seems a little shady, but that's what he does. So he's kind of heroic in the sense. And the way Lynn Ramsey approaches this movie that has these out, you know, outbursts of violence, she's much more interested in the moment right after the violence. And so a lot of the times it actually cuts out or cuts away in a sense from the scenes where the violent moments are taking place. And instead she shows you right after those moments and the effect it has on the character. And it, to me, that's utterly fascinating and felt totally original and something that with another director could have been just a totally routine um, action or revenge plot that I think we would have seen before. Um, Joaquin also lives, and this is uh, something that I thought was really interesting, the relationship with his mother that he uh, also looks after, um, you know, a much older woman is actually, and I did not know this when I was watching it, it's kind of blown my mind. Uh, it's played by this woman, Judith Roberts, who turns out to be the, the woman who lives across from Henry in Eraserhead who seduces him Whoa. that that yeah that really attractive woman who seduces him that's crazy. i know this is her like 40 and i had no idea so i have to assume lynn ramsey did that on purpose but she's her relationship with him is so kind of fun and they just have this really interesting kind of like they're making fun of psycho and she's watching old movies and i don't know i just really loved how that was shown and there, but there's there's a couple moments in this movie that really you know, proved to me that I, I think Lynn Ramsey is one of the best directors working and uh, not working enough. Um, but there's a scene where he looks at a jelly bean in close up where you just are totally 
her ability to get into the inner life of her characters through how they see the world from their perspective it's just incredible and then there's a scene and i won't ruin it but it is my favorite scene of the year by far there's no movie or no scene that just made me fall in love with what movies can do as much as a scene that takes place on a kitchen floor between two characters in this movie and it is utterly remarkable and surprising and funny and so if if for only that reason you should take a risk on this movie um i i truly love this movie i think it's it's really going to hold up and it's got a beautiful johnny greenwood score uh and and again joaquin has had a great year i haven't seen brothers sisters yet but i hear he's really good in that um and and you know he's just he's just one of those actors who i think is just at the top of his game right now um and i and i love i love also this film also lets a female victim kind of uh become a bit of a champion and, and a hero in a sense and in, in, in a certain part of this movie that i really appreciated this year it, it just felt like it felt like perfectly timed um great great damn movie yeah no i'm with you it's almost made my list but another one that i knew and hoped that you'd have on yours yeah i was really excited that lynn ramsey showed herself to be as good as you know she has been and uh yeah just i hope it leads to more stuff i want to see more movies by her as soon as possible she i know she doesn't necessarily work that way but um i just can't wait she's just something else yeah no it's it yeah because you never know when people uh when there's a few years between films and also dealing with kind of very pulp material i I definitely was like ah i want this to be my favorite film of the year but i don't know if it's going to be that's how i entered that that screening and when i walked out i was like all right she did it you know so that's my number one um obviously we could talk about a couple near misses if you have them but I wanted to th- mention three, Just I'll just say the title for next year. I wanted to put them on my list, and I almost said, fuck it, I don't care about this whole 2018 thing. But then I realized it's a little unfair because none of you can see them yet. But three I would look out for, especially those first two, Dragged Across Concrete would definitely be on my list. Uh, that's S. Craig Zoller's Corrupt Cop uh, with Vince Vaughn and Mel Gibson. And Mel Gibson, best work of the last 20 years, in my opinion. It's really great. Yeah, look out for that one. And In Fabric, Peter Strickland, uh, his new film about kind of a surreal haunted dress. It's kind of an anthology. It's funny and one of the weirdest movies I saw this year, uh, but it really works. And then Gaspar Noe's Climax is definitely... Uh, or like I call it, step up and die. Um, it's <laughs> it's his crazy weird dance movie, a bad acid trip. It doesn't completely work narratively for me, but as an experience, it's pretty damn, pretty damn amazing. So those are three that will be coming out festivals or next year. But uh, otherwise, they would have made my list. Nice. Um, can I throw out a couple honorables? Yeah, yeah, honorables. Real quick, I'm gonna just burn through these. Um, Mission Impossible Fallout. Still got to see Inc- it. Can't wait. Incredible, incredible Hollywood movie. Really well done. I think you'll dig it. I I, I don't know. I, for, for what it is, I just feel like the Macquarie Tom Cruise combo. Uh, and for what it is, I mean, you know, a big Hollywood product. It's it's a pretty great one. Like those guys really give a crap about what they're doing, and they're really trying to take it to another level. And the last two or three Mission Impossible films I've really enjoyed. So that's great. Uh, first Man. This will be the first manned mission to land on the moon. Neil, if this flight is successful, you'll go down in history. We're planning on the flight being successful. 
was on the list and I took it off mm. for Destination Wedding, which I shouldn't have done. But um, <laughs> I, love, I love that you've now outed which movie replaced it. No, it wasn't actually. It was it was that I wanted Destination Wedding on. It was higher up on the list. Okay. It was in you know my near top five. It was it's great, uh, really well constructed. Maybe a little long, but uh, it's pretty epic story, and uh, I really think it's neat that Damien Chazelle cashed in. I think on this movie, I think this is kind of his cash in movie, uh, from, you know, his La La Land experience or maybe not regardless. He does a good job with it. Ryan Gosling's great. It's a really stoic performance. It's, it's pretty powerful. Mm. Um, and it's just well done, you know, in terms of the, uh, showing the, just how crazy these guys were and how little they really had under control before hurling themselves into space. Uh, so that's fascinating. Um, anyway, uh, I really liked Ready Player One. I know I'm in the minority. A lot of people hated it. Uh, I think it is an interesting complementary item to the book itself. I don't, and I don't think it needs to be the book. I think what it is is a Steven Spielberg, you know, version of that story, and I think that kind of works because the book itself is steeped in Spielberg, so it it kind of rolls onto itself and plays fine as far as I'm concerned. Hmm. So I've, that's another one I've seen a bunch that I really think is pretty great. And for me anyway, it's just right in my wheelhouse. Um, I liked eighth grade. It was a tough watch, but I liked it. Yeah. That one I'd need to see still. It looks good. It is good. Um, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. Surprisingly good. I know that's getting a lot of praise right now, but it's pretty solid. I gotta say, I was pretty impressed with it. Uh, and it's got Nick Cage. Spoiler alert. So uh, oh, so he really had a golden year. I did not know he's in that. Yeah, and he and he doesn't show up until later in the movie, and he's great. Okay, so your movie's already good yeah. to a point, and then you got Cage. Yeah. So think about it. Um, Sorry to bother you. I think is very interesting as a movie. I I didn't make my list, but I think it's it's really a special piece of work and a movie that goes to much weirder places than I would ever have expected him to be able to get away with. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it yet. That's probably the reason it's not on my list. I, a lot of people have said they think I'll like it a lot, so I'm going to definitely make sure I watch it. There's definitely things about it that will stick with you and that will intrigue you. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you'll you'll probably dig it. I'm not, I'm not sure. Uh, and then lastly, uh, Searching, I thought was... Mm, yeah, I'm curious about know, that one, yeah. I know a lot of people are on the fence because it's all through devices and everything, but screens. Uh, but I thought it was pretty well done uh, for what it was. And it, it's clear that they took a lot of time thinking about how to put it together uh, and make it work and flow. And and you got to give them a little credit when you watch it. Even if you don't end up liking it, there's definitely got to be a part of you that goes, okay, yeah, I got to give somebody you know a little props for thinking this whole thing out like how do you do that so i don't know it's it's a fun little ride it's enjoyable the but that's it for me yeah i had a couple and and it's hard because one of the problems is we're watching a lot of this really recently and so i already kind of had a list in place and then i watched um von trier's new one house that jack built uh just about two nights ago and i i the matt dillon stuff in this movie is so good and it's and again a lot of people are worried about obviously misogyny and violence but that is what the movie's about it's not i don't think it's as clear-cut as saying uh von trier's being a misogynist i think it's about that's a huge part of what the movie's about and matt dillon's incredible in it uh uma thurman has a great scene 
each, each of the victims of this serial killer have really funny scenes and it has Von Trier's typical uh, sense of humor, which is dark, but funny. I find it, I find it actually really funny. I, I probably saw one cut by a little couple minutes because it's not the unrated. The thing that took me a little bit out of it is kind of the... Uh, kind of the point of the movie is that they're descending into hell and there's, you know, uh, comparing the role of the artist and Von Trier as a director to that of a serial killer. That stuff is a little, uh, even though it's probably the point of the movie, was a little less interesting to me and maybe just kept it off just off the top 10 for me. But that was, and then one other one that's been making a lot of indie lists I've noticed that I thought was really beautiful. And I don't know if you've heard of this one called The Writer. Yeah. Really interesting movie. And again, it might be a little too perfect for me because it's all of one tone, but the tone is basically perfect, but it has no peaks and valleys. It's like this very simple portrait of this guy you know young man who had ridden uh, bulls and wild horses uh, he's when the movie opens he's got this really bad head injury so probably won't be able to do that again and it almost feels like some connection to the lusty men or something where in this world of a part of america that's gone probably or, or going um and the director she's really able to kind of focus on like locals and people in this town and it, it's beautifully made and it was very close it was probably going to be my nine ten spot right up until kind of showtime where i was just like you know i really like that movie but i think it's getting a lot of love on the indie and it's a little less me so i decided to leave it off even though i thought it was really effective um and uh and then one more i'm only going to throw this out because we're going to talk about it in an upcoming or even very soon uh episode uh it's going to come up organically this is going to this is going to surprise you i watched this late last night on netflix and it could almost vie for tying for my number one spot on my list but I, what? yeah, that's how how crazy good this movie is. It's a documentary, and because I only saw it last night, I just was like, I can't wedge this in organically, and I know we're about to talk about it, so I'm just going to put it out there for people to watch this. I'm not going to say much about it. Shirkers, directed by Sandy Tan. It is a filmmaking like it's a documentary about film and filmmaking and and passion for movies. Every single person who listens to our show will love that movie. Like that movie. I was just like floored by it. It's it's somewhere kind of it's got a little bit of a Jarmusch vibe because of her love of Jarmusch. But it's about a young filmmaker who was about 18 and her punk friends who lived in Singapore. And they had this film teacher who was really inspirational from America who they decide she wrote a feature script and decided to make a feature film. And he helps them make it. And then at a certain point, the movie disappears. And it is. It's really a special movie. And and it's it's just, I think I'm still in a little bit of like, oh, I don't know where I could have placed it on my list because I just saw it. But it's so good that it could easily, sh- because it's also a documentary, it's a little different. It's that good. So uh, I think you're going to love this movie if you haven't seen it. No, I haven't. It sounds great. I just added it to my Netflix. Yeah. I've, I heard somebody mention it or I read it in a list, but it was only in like one. It is definitely recently. one of the best films of the year. Definitely. Like that's unquestionably because it's about something we could all identify with. And it's and it's done very honestly. Um, she's really reflecting on herself and her friends are talking about her as a filmmaker. It's just it's really interesting. It's and Singapore's not saying you've seen many movies from most of us. So uh, 
uh, yeah, I think this is this is a must add. It's just I saw it late last night, so it, it was a little hard for me to. F- and documentaries, even though I know everyone goes, oh, it doesn't matter if it's a documentary or movie. It's it, people say that, but it is obviously your brain just you know almost puts place things in different lists. You know, I could very easily just if I had more time to watch more stuff, make my top ten documentary list, and it's not because I don't think of them in the same way. It's just the way my brain works. You know. Yeah. No, that's cool. I'm totally going to check that out. You will love it. Well, that was epic. That was epic, and uh, and our next hangouts will be much more chill because our we st- restarted the show with two hangouts that were both like end of year lists. So uh, our next one will definitely be more topic based and just hanging out and uh, and more questions, uh, listener questions and stuff like that. So, but I'm glad I'm glad we're through it. We've wrapped 2018, uh, and now we're into all the crazy stuff that uh, the new year is going to bring. Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Thanks, as always, uh, to all the listeners, all the Patreon supporters. Amazing support of the new Beverly. Uh, you know, we're excited about where things are going to go this year.